welcome, welcome, welcome to the Fantasy Fangirls Podcast, where two sisters dive deep, deep, deep into beloved fantasy lore, characters, themes, series, and more. Before we dive into chapters 26 through 30 of Fourth Wing today, we are having some fun and made a Fourth Wing survey for this lovely community. So we link it here in the show notes. And of course, it's on our social pages. If you want to take a few moments to submit who, you know, like your favorite character is, which quadrant you prefer, and so many more fun Fourth Wing questions. We don't have any ulterior motives here. We're not trying to collect your email or anything. We're just having fun and we're going to post the results for everyone to see. So now today's content warning is dedicated to all of our relatives, whether by blood and especially by marriage. We of Fantasy Fangirls Podcast are adults who say adult things about an adult book. Chapter 30. If you know, (laughs) you know. Please, please. If it is weird for us to talk about sex in real life, turn this off. I beg of you so that I can look you in the eyes at a family event. We also talk spoilers. Our first and only one-star review was mad that there were spoilers in our podcast. So in case we have not been completely, totally crystal clear, we cover spoilers from the entire Fourth Wing book, not just whatever chapters we're covering here. We also talk about speculations for Iron Flame, as well as anything that Rebecca Yaros has ever said. So if you don't know why, shall I get the wing leader is the most perfect line in this book, then stop listening. Go listen to the audiobook instead. We are not responsible for what you hear next. And now it is time to wield some fucking lightning. Let's go! And one more thing. Fantasy Fangirls is now on Patreon. Yes, you'll get more content from us and get more out of this community. Plus, this kind of support is the absolute best way to help us of Fantasy Fangirls keep giving back to you, our incredible community. There are two tier options that you can join at, and the content includes things like a Discord, monthly live Q&As, discounted merch, our outlines, yes, the 30 to 45 pages ones, early access to episodes, and more. We understand that everyone might not be in a position to support us in this way and that's totally fine but if you are and you enjoy this content you want more of it and you want to support Nicole myself and our growing team we would so 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 appreciate you joining our Patreon. The link to learn more about our Patreon is in the show notes. Now back to the episode. Before we dive into today's stretch of chapters, let us begin with our battle brief or the summary of what happens in chapters 26 through 30. Take it away, Nicole. Chapter 26. To Montserrat, we fly. After landing in their first place prize, a balmy outpost near the eastern border named Montserrat, a group of flyers comes in from patrol. And do we hear? Is that Violet? It's our second favorite fantasy big sister behind Lexi, Mira. And the two sisters reunite in a way that, yes, will make us ugly cry. But that's not the only reunion we get. Ree's family, including her sister and new baby nephew, are only five minutes dragon ride away. Ree and Vi sneak out on day two, well done, at Montserrat, and they get caught instantly by Mira. But it doesn't take much to wear Mira down and bring her along for the ride. At Ree's parents' house, we get a very wholesome moment between the two sisters. And upon leaving, just as Violet asks Mira, how long can mated pairs be separated? Who steps out of the shadows but our shadow daddy himself, Zayden Ryerson. And Nicole, 
melts. Chapter 27. The next day here on this field trip, half of Second Squad is sitting around a table doing fake battle planning. But hold up. Who just talked into Violet's mind? Mind to mind trope has entered our story. After they finish up the meeting, Zayden, Violet, and Dane are called into the principal's office, aka to talk to Mira. And boy, oh boy, does this sister lay into Dane and it's delicious. After Dane leaves, she's beginning to lay into our enemies to lovers. But what's that? A drift of griffins are headed this way. The squad flees, but as Violet tries her best to stay and fight alongside her big sister, Zayden distracts her with a kiss, more on that later, and an irate Violet gets scooped into the sky by Tarn. Field trip over. Chapter 28. Violet is waiting outside of Professor Markham's office a few days later when Zayden shows up bringing her the one thing every girl needs their boot to bring them coffee. But Dane the Stain shows up to pour an ice bucket of water over these two and has an, oh my god, Violet, do you need breakfast? Coffee, my guy. We want coffee. Professor Markham shows up and he's got good news. Mira and the rest of the outpost survive. Huzzah! The weight that has been crushing our girl Violet takes over and she runs to her only safe place, her golden dragon, to let it all out. After a session of 20 questions where we're pretty sure Violet loses, if you can even lose that game, it's time for War Games Round 1. Meeting up with her dragon, Violet notices a shiny new fit on Taren, and we guess Zayden's love language is gift giving because of course our shadow daddy gave Violet a saddle. War Games is simple. Retrieve the egg. Hello, Goblet of Fire. It's nice to see ya. But in the sky, Violet notices Jack fucking Barlow is guarding the egg they need and he begins dragon fighting with Liam. Don't touch our man. And Jack fucking Barlow slices into our dude, causing him to fall to his death. But in Darna's gift to the rescue, Violet stops time and her and Taryn scoop up our boy Liam and filled with rage, Violet lashes out on Jack with a crackle of lightning and Jack falls dead. Yes, we will be talking about this theory. Hold your horses, people. Huzzah! After 29, Violet is a lightning wielder, but shit, our girl has some very valid feelings about it. After landing on the flight field, Violet retches and Dane the Stain sweeps her into a comforting hug, telling her, it's okay, Violet, you don't have to use your power. But Zayden isn't fucking having it with Dane's fucking coddling shit today. He pushes Dane away and grabs Violet's shoulders, giving her a big old wake-up call. This is war, bitch. People die, but with her signet, she is the weapon. And she can save thousands of innocent lives. Way to mindset shift our guy, Zayden. Later that night, <sighs> this is the moment I've been waiting for. Zayden comes to check up on Violet. Oh, Nicole's got her sexy voice on now, everybody. <laughs> His girl had a shitty day. <laughs> Crying already. And she's doing what, honestly, most of us wish we could be doing after a shit day, and that is throwing daggers at a wall. My landlord would not like that. But then the tension, the crackling tension between these two is just too much. And chapter 30, bang, 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 These two finally fuck, ladies and gentlemen. Huzzah! And it's frighteningly perfect. But then X-Man comes in to twist the knife with a, whatever you do, don't fall for me. Way too late for that, my guy. The next morning, Zayden is gone, but there are violets on her desk and the broken pieces of basically all of her furniture are placed in a corner. Way to make us not fall for you, my guy. Professor Carr shows up and whisks Violet away to a mountaintop where she's ready to practice her freaking lightning wielding. But how... Does she practice lightning wielding without the wing leader? <laughs>
Zayden projects into her mind images that reflect, we made a home videotape last night energy. <laughs> and our girl gets quite a emotional reaction. She wields lightning again and again and again and again. But it turns out it's harder than she thought. <laughs> Oh, this is going to be such a fun episode. <laughs> I think that might be my crowning achievement on this planet is that chapter <laughs> summary right there. So now it's time to tap into our signet powers, key insights, reflections, foreshadowing, and of course, our favorite theories. Let us begin at Montserrat. So first and foremost, you and I grew up doing a lot of road trips together. And I mean, like 10 to 13 hour road trips. Like we were road trip queens, us little, little nuggets. I don't know if I could do six hours on the back of a dragon. That sounds miserable. It really does. It reminds me of when they were heading to the Department of Mysteries and they were flying on the Thestrals for like hours and hours. It's like freezing. <laughs> I used to ride horses and, you know, I would be on a horse for like hours and hours too. But oh my gosh, like after like hour three, it's like, ugh, my back hurts. Like you need a bath afterward. It is rough. But I also like just at being in Montserrat, I love getting this firsthand insight about how outposts work. And, you know, we, we meet writers who have graduated. So we kind of see what it's like here on the other side. And to be honest, I personally needed a break from Biscayeth. And I love how their visit here really folds into the story. It provides us with more world building. It provides us with good character development outside of their usual setting. You know, we're seeing the real deal here with descriptions like observing the gaunt, weathered look all writers get when they've been stationed on the border for too long. This is war, guys. Like this is war. And we're seeing it firsthand for the first time. It reminds me of like when you graduate college and you're on the other side, like you're, you know, starting the working life and all that kind of stuff. You don't realize how safe and structured that college is until you, you know, graduate and get on the other side. And I just love how hilariously, I don't know if bitter is the right word, but hilariously just like casual the other writers are. Like, it's just, it's so fun to meet other people. I love, and of course, to see Mira again, which their reunion, I'm pretty sure I wept the first time reading this. And I do think a lot of that has heavily influenced the fact that you and I have had situations just like this, where we've been apart for a long time. You know, we never had like harsh rules about not communicating with each other, but we were busy. We didn't talk very much. And like to see you again, I'm pretty sure when you visited me at college, like I ran into your arms and we just like wept in the parking lot of the airport. And after you've been through so much, whether it was us and just kind of like the way that life just changes, you know, as it does. And especially for these two right here and for Violet in particular, seeing one of your safe people after you've been through so much, your walls just come down. I know that like when I've seen, when I saw mom and dad for the first time when I was still very, very pregnant and I was just all the feels and everything was just coming down and my life felt like it was just weighing on my shoulders. I just like was a puddle when I hugged mom because just all of your walls just come down. And I love how we can all relate to this moment between Mira and Violet when they're reuniting and all all of those emotions that Violet feels and the way that Mira is, is making sure that she's all right. She's making sure her baby sister's okay. Imagine being Mira and how glued she's been to reading the death rolls whenever she's been able to. And she's heard how Violet bonded to dragons. She heard about how somebody tried to murder, you know, multiple people tried to murder her. There's so much pride and relief and love shared between these sisters. And I just absolutely love their relationship. And you know, one line that just really warms my heart. We might be hundreds of miles from Beskaith, but 
have never felt more at home. Just uh. And there's so much understanding between the two of them because they've both been through the writer's quadrant. Mira knows what, what it means to survive as a first year. And she knows that her sister is not the same as the last time that they saw each other because just no one is, right? This is something that they really do share together. And I just, oh, I love it. So to add a total foreboding note to this, there's two you're not going to be an only child mentions in the Montserrat stretch. So the first is when Violet is, you know, like hugging her sister and she's like, I didn't die. You're not an only child. And she's saying that very like lighthearted and, you know, funny to Mira. And then right when the Griffins start attacking, Mira says, don't die. I don't want to be an only child. There is so much only child. Now, obviously, Brennan is alive. Neither of these two sisters know that yet, at least as far as we know on Mira's end. We personally do not think she's aware of Brennan. This just feels very foreboding. Yeah. Like, oh, just Rebecca's going to fuck us over. I, like, she is just going to fuck us up as she nurtures this heartwarming sisterly relationship. You're purposefully making us fall in love with these two sisters and the relationship. I'm just getting ready for heartache. If you had to guess a book, two through five, which one do you think Mira might die in? Because I'm assuming it's going to be Mira, not Violet. Oh, yeah. Me too. I'm going to say end of book three. That's my guess too. Three or four. I would assume it's like midway through the series, but not like the climactic end of the series. Yes, exactly. Me too. So I love that Imogen, you know, as these two sisters are like, no. Imogen's like Sorengales are weird. It, we mentioned this in episode four, but this has so much more weight knowing that Imogen knows that Brennan is alive. We're assuming she also knows Brennan. Yes, she's looking at these two Sorengales just like absolute parrot calling to each other basically, but she also knows that Brennan, she probably maybe might think Brennan is weird as well. So I just love that extra depth to that line that you get on a reread. Oh, me too. And I have so much more to say about Imogen. Oh yeah, you do. Very, yeah, I have lots more to say about her and Monster. <laughs> But we're not there yet. <laughs> the, the outline was significantly shorter. And then I look the next day and I'm like, what the fuck? And there's this like dissertation written about Imogen in Montserrat. <laughs> Going back to Mira, because I'm never done talking about her. She is such a big sister when it comes to Dane. Like she represents all of us readers as she puts him in his place in a way only an older sister can. I resonate so much with her. I really hope she doesn't die. I'm pretty sure she's going to, as we just talked about, but I hope she doesn't as a big sister. I actually think Nicole, your husband, Brett, could attest to the similarities between Mira and I being a protective older sister. So Lexi, her first time meeting Brett was I was a freshman in college. Brett and I were dating and Lexi hears that I have this boyfriend and she's visiting and she hasn't met him yet because she thinks he's hiding from her. He probably was. He was. We, I had been there for hours and hours and it's like, OK, Nicole, like, you're on a campus. Like, where is this new boyfriend of yours? Like he was just hanging out in his room. He was not busy. So she kicks his door down and bursts into his room and demands to see him. This is after she called Brett using his roommate's phone to deceive him to letting her upstairs. Well yeah. done, Lex. He was avoiding me and I needed to meet him. And clearly I had to take some assertive action with that. So it's okay. We didn't last long freshman year. <laughs> we broke up for five <laughs> years and then got back together. So it's fine. They sneak out. And I just want to point out that therapist Mira came in hot today. She's telling her sister that her signet will manifest when she stops, quote, blocking it by thinking it has anything to do with mom. Jesus Christ. <laughs> and there's so much truth to this, too. She is blocking her signet. And I'm going to go so much into that here soon when we talk about her signet. She has been blocking it. And that's a big reason, whether it's because of her mom or, or all of these other emotions that she's kind of trying to keep in check here. Speaking of Mira, though, did she see a wyvern? Okay, it, quote, because I need to quote this directly from the book. 
I could have sworn I saw a riot of dragons across the border during this attack, but questions about secret operations are above my pay grade. Violet thought the wyverns were dragon at first at the end battle in this book. Did she see a wyvern? <laughs> Possibly. So I thought this too initially when, when I was rereading it and it's like, oh my gosh, like that very well could have been it. Now I'm trying to kind of put my research hat on with it. So I was under the impression most of the activity is along the southern border here. We are right now on the eastern border. So if it is wyvern, this right here would prove just how extensive and widespread these attacks are with Wyvern and Venon. So it was during this border attack on the village of Cranston, which was raided by Griffins and their flyers, that Mira thinks she saw this riot of dragons across the border. My question, however, is why would the Griffins have been attacking them, meaning Navarre, with Venon and Wyvern so close by? Like they kind of got bigger issues to worry about, assuming that whatever they're raiding there in Navarre is not for like immediate usage against the Venon. Another possibility that I think I actually might be leaning towards here is that it was wyvern but it was the marked ones like Zayden and his crew and their dragons who were aiding the griffin flyers who then attacked oh that's got a lot of weight to it I might just dive dive in that camp with you because that that's no matter what it's something that we're supposed to be like huh now again we don't know where the village of Cranston is I looked for it on the map and I don't believe that it's on the map there assuming that it is kind of more towards the eastern side of the eastern border I feel like most of Zayden and his crew are staying more along the southern border because that's what you know where Tyrandor his providence was and all so again we don't know about the geography here but I'm leaning towards it was actually marked ones helping the Griffin writers who then went and attacked Navarre, which again opens up a lot of other questions that I'm sure we'll be diving into because for instance, we said on the last episode, Zayden and them, they are all about protecting innocence and how these Griffin flyers are going in and raiding these outposts and more specifically these Navarian villages. That goes against what Zayden and his crew are wanting to do. They want to protect innocent lives. It's really adding up more and more that they are aiding these griffin flyers who are then going and attacking Navarian outposts and villages. Well, speaking of things that immediately put us on high alert, when talking about the Book of Fables, this is again still at Ree's family's house, Mira says that she has it back at the outpost with such, such a good big sister move, Mira. I love it. She says, she meaning Mira, I know they're just stories, but I never used to get why the villains would choose to corrupt their souls and become venom. And now... Violet then says, you empathize with the villain. I hope to God, I hope to God that this is there to give us a little wink, wink, nudge, nudge. We're going to get a backstory behind the Venom. I love a villain backstory. One of my biggest pet peeves in fantasy is just having a bad guy be a bad guy for shit's sake. And instead of having it be like, this is what they want. It's the reason Half-Blood Prince is my favorite book because it's literally an entire villain backstory. It's the reason Rings of Power is such a masterpiece in my mind because it's an entire villain backstory. Please, for the love of God, all I ask Rebecca Yaros is please just don't make this a White Walker situation Game of Thrones season eight, where it's just like, they're the big bad. They want Bran. They want his memories. It's like, it's fucking really? Dumb. That's it? Like, that's like, all we're getting? Oh my God. I could go on a whole rant about. Maybe we'll do like a Game of Thrones <laughs> rant podcast as a bonus episode someday. We'll see. Let us know if you guys want that. Mira really being able to understand why the Venon are going after this power, why they are willing to sell their souls for power, essentially. This is, I agree with you, absolutely a promise to the reader that we'll learn more about Venon 
And this is also a reminder within this fantasy book of the power of power. That magic is special. That power is sought out by any means necessary. We're so used to being immersed in this dragon rider culture that we grow accustomed to the magic, not really recognizing how unique this is within their society. This is why people choose the writer's quadrant despite, yeah. you know, three quarters of them dying before graduation. The possibility of death is worth the power that you receive through bonding with a dragon. And the same goes for the venom, right? Too. Like they are willing, it's not so much death, but they're willing to put their lives on the line in a different kind of way to gain that power. It's a real nod to how elite these writers are and the power that they have is so essential and important to society. And I'm like nodding my head like, yeah, that's exactly the reason why I would join the Warriors Quadrant. It's like the chance of having a, a, a power is so fucking cool. They leave the cottage. This is just Mira and Violet. They're given recent privacy with her family. And who walks out of the shadows? We're going to talk about the whole who was it who really egged on the like, we need to fly to Montserrat. Was it Sigal? Was it Satan? But I want to first ask you, did you think he was going to show up? Did you have this on your mind? No. When we were thinking about Montserrat in the beginning, like I definitely saw, I saw it coming with Mira. Like I was like, that would be like, of course Mira is going to be there, right? And they're going to have this reunion. I, in hindsight, this is very naive of me that I did not even think about Zayden coming and being there. So no. What about you? Absolutely not. I like literally it was like he steps out of the shadows and it's like I don't even remember what exactly he said. And I was like, Yes. <laughs> literally just like absolute fist pump in the air. I was so excited. This guy it's failing education. It's become quite a theme on this podcast, and let's talk about it more. So as we enter chapter 27, which I think actually might be one of my favorite chapters in this entire book, Mira is asking, like, you know, they're in like this little like makeshift battle brief that Mira is leading. It also shows really like how much Mira has risen up the ranks that she's like leading this charge and the other two writers are just like kicking back and like you know being like do you want to whip it out and measure man so you were you were saying earlier if this is like their first job or it's like your internship after college right and you're realizing like nothing you learned in the classroom actually applies a hundred percent I got my my degree in well first of all news editorial with focus in PR and yeah they discontinued my degree the year after I graduated that shows how useless it was. I don't know. It's coming in handy right now. I'll tell you it that. It is, right? But but like Mira's kind of like your first boss, right? Where it's kind of like she she's nice. She like, kind of like is nice to you. But at the same time, it's like you got to be an adult here. She treats you like an adult. She's like, step it fucking up because yes. you are, I'm not going to baby you. And that first job, that first mentor that you have is so critical like to the rest of your career and I just really see her fitting very much into this role again like that's something that I take pride in with you know when we have like our new young 20 something year olds come on board and they'd be on my team it's like oh hello welcome to the real world now huffing up cookie because we got work to do Gary, you're scary. So as Mira is asking, like, who's been called out before to man the outpost while the writers who are normally at the outpost go to the front lines? Zayden and Emery both like raise their hand. I also love that Zayden's just like a casual like half hand up. He's such like the bad boy in the classroom and I gobble it up like nobody's business. But Dane says, quote, that's not correct. We're never called into service until graduation. I love that first and foremost. I love that Zayden just goes, like, because I'm like a sarcastic thumbs up of like, yeah, bro, man. But this 
really highlight something. First and foremost, the fact that Dane is immediately just like, that's not right. Like two people are right now here, three really with Mira are confirming that this is correct. And he is so brainwashed by the Bezgaya system that he is just like, absolutely not. There's no way. But I do love that Emery says like, I've lost count how many times they've been sitting in these outposts while riders are raced to the front. And this is huge. It says, quote, the color drains from Dane's face. This is a really important moment for Dane. He's realizing for the first time two things. One, he doesn't know everything. I'm so sorry, Dane. You're not a genius <laughs> on everything. Oh, darn. So sad. But two, he's realizing that he's not being told everything. And this realization that he doesn't know what to expect going into his next year, like he's one year behind these guys. And it just, it really shows how much is shielded from him and he's gonna have a wake-up call if he chooses to fucking open his eyes and see it. And we dive so much more into this in episode five's archive section about the war and all of that. Again, it's just like, he is a squad leader. He should know that members of his squad are who are third years are leaving to go on these missions, and he doesn't. His he dad has, is a colonel. Yeah. He should know this. He, he should. And I don't know if it's just him, because he also did not know that Violet couldn't keep her seat. Like, I don't know if he's just oblivious and he's really bad at his job, like what we've talked about a million times before, or, and I think it is more of, well, it's a little bit of both, but more so this one, that they really are shielded until it's actually time. Like the leadership and the professors and whoever it is here in the writer's quadrant doesn't want the state of how bad things are to actually get out. To piggy up back off that, this is a wake up call for him to realize we're not being told everything in battle brief. They're being called to the front lines for things he's not hearing about in battle brief. So what's going on? And it's just, it's planting the seed. And Rebecca's been very clear about she's not on the hate date train. I do have a feeling in my gut that we are going to get a redemption arc for Dane. I think it will have to be the redemption arc of the fucking century. However, I do think that there is going to be some form of redemption for Dane. And this might be the moment where things are planted for him. I have no idea. Am I rooting for that? I don't really know. I trust Rebecca to handle it in a very well done way. I really do trust her. But just something for us all to keep our keep our eyes peeled for. So we've talked a lot about Dane taking L's. We've talked about Colonel Atos taking L's. But we do need to talk about Mira taking some capital L's right now. So she's blatantly staring and glaring at the marked ones. And this is not a good look for Mira. Zayden's class is going to be the first to graduate with Rebellion Relics, which means that next year, the existing outposts, the existing wings on the front will, for the first time, have marked ones join. And it's really starting to show how much prejudice is being shown towards the marked ones. Absolutely. And I believe that this is going to be a really prominent theme in the next few books, because I think about it, their parents, their siblings... And quite a few of the people who are currently writers, they were part of the Civil War, essentially. They they fought against this uprising, and then everybody except for these marked ones who were involved in the uprising were killed. So now these marked ones, they are literally marked because of what their parents did, because of what is assumed of them, because they are not trusted. And the as much as in the writer's quadrant, everyone's trying to kill each other, there is still that level of trust. In fact, they're trying to kill each other to weed out the weakest so 
so that when they do graduate and they are part of these outpost missions, that they know that they have each other's backs to the death, that they can literally put their lives in these other people's hands. That's 101 in in military, right? I don't know much about the military, but that is number one. You have to be able to trust the person next to you. They're not going to be able to. Mira will not be able to trust the marked ones and whatnot. And same thing goes with the marked ones not being able to trust the Navarian writers. It's going to be really interesting. I am really worried like if there's going to be moments of them getting, I'll, I'll say bullied, but almost to the point of like ostracized in the outposts. And like, what if they start like, you know, pr- the current outpost people start like rebelling and like hurting them or God forbid killing them. Like, you know, like I do really worry that that is going to be something that appears in our story. And I'm really curious how the dragons are going to react to that. <gasps> I also am curious about the timing here. Do you think that Zayden, Brennan and co are timing the revolution to be when some of the marked ones graduate? Because they've kind of been laying low for a few years for their own reasons. And it makes sense. Now that the two types of people, like they're going to be essentially going head to head, they can't work together and trust one another where their lives literally depend on it. So is now going to be a really good time to start that second revolution there once when Zayden and co are like, I'll say inserted into enemy territory almost. Well, I wonder if they're going to play spy for a few years for more rebellion relic marked ones to graduate and like have more people on their side, yada, yada, yada. Because also if I was Zayden, I would be worried about what would happen to the marked ones at Bezgaeth if they start rebelling like got quite a bit of responsibility it's basically said Mm. like his life is forfeit if anyone rebels like if he's the one who rebels i would assume the 107 also their lives are also forfeit so i would assume that they're going to wait a little longer plus then zayden would get more intel being on the front lines a little bit more he's a wing leader so he's going to have his pick of a position next year oh god oh god it makes me so nervous let's talk about happier things which means no more politicking and let's get into zayden's big old shift here i love it so zayden draping an arm over Violet's chair first and foremost is delicious because Dane is like how dare you but it's also such a boyfriendy thing to do he's also winking at her he's smiling at her this is such a shift from when they were at Bezgaeth and here's my personal favorite line and it's gonna open up a big old question of this chapter you never considered that it was you I couldn't stay away from so I have to ask, what do you think about that line? Was it Sigale who needed to be close to Tarn, or was it Zayden who needed to be close to Violet? So I think it was a very much cocktail of both. But here's where I am curious, because Darna and Violet are separated for this long. And we learned last stretch of chapters from Re that basically like they can't be separated for more than a few days. So I do wonder if this is a big old faded mates clue we've speculated on the podcast before that the bond with Taryn and Segale might have been extended to Violet and Zayden when Violet bonded with Taryn it also might have been in place before that there are some clues you know like when she meets him and all that kind of stuff also when she's waiting outside of Professor Markham's office later on Violet says about Zayden I feel like I know who he is at the marrow of his bones this just feels like a little faded mates or maybe even just mates clue here so that that being said, if they do have the same bond as Taryn and Segale, Taryn and Segale basically can't be apart for, we'll say, three days because that's the best guess we have. If Taryn and Segale can't be apart for three days, that would also extend to Zayden and Violet for three days. So I do think it was a bit of both Segale and Zayden being like, 
my health is deteriorating. I need to see my girl. What are your thoughts, though? I'm not as rom- the hopeless romantic as you. So I am leaning more towards it being Sigal and Taryn. However, I think that it wasn't so much her being like, okay, I am going to die if I don't if we don't do this right now. I think it was a little bit more of a, yeah, I'm not feeling good. Let's go ahead and hop over there because Zayden had an ulterior motive going there too, which we're going to talk about here in a little while. As far as like him needing to be near, near Violet, I don't think so. Not that he didn't want to see her, but you know, like he didn't have to see her. And Sigal was like, yeah, I should probably see Taryn. And he's like, all right, cool. Well, I got to go, you know, take these weapons over to the Griffins anyway. So let's load on up and head out. Here's my one argument. Cause when we get Zayden's POV at the end, it is very much like, I cannot live without her. I cannot live without her. I cannot live without her. Now that is obviously after they've slept together twice. It's after they've had very intimate moments together. However, I do think that is definitely being planted if not fully locked in now. So we're going to agree to disagree on that. I 100% think it was like, I do think it was Sigal, definitely. But I do also think that Zayden was like, I need to see her. Because he was also getting so used to being around her constantly. He was training her. He was, you know, all this stuff. So I do think it was a lot of him missing her. Last like boyfriendy Zayden shift I want to point out is that when the room blacks out because he brings his shadows up, he says, relax, it's just me. And quote, a ghost of a touch skims my cheek. And then he says, I hope you didn't get any ideas while we were in the dark there. He's flirting with her and I love it. It's fucking about time. And I do think it took them being separated for him to realize how much he missed her, for him to realize how much he really does want to be with her. But then we get perfection. Zayden talks into her mind. Now, I'm going to be honest. My jaw dropped when I read this for the first time. And I swear to God, I did a fist pump in the air. I swear to God. I love a mind-to-mind trope. It is delicious. It's delectable. It's lovely. But here's an interesting distinction that I really want to point out. He cannot hear her thoughts, or at least it seems like it in this moment. She's thinking to herself over and over and over again, and he's not responding. So from my understanding, she does have to speak to him through the little like night shadows corner of the archives that she has in her mind. But on numerous occasions he does respond to her thoughts without her speaking directly into that little Zayden hole in her mind unless she's doing it unknowingly this was like props to you this was such a good (laughs) catch because I I like yeah 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 that, that's a very interesting distinction. So when she is just thinking things throughout the book, he's responding to her thoughts, which does seem a little sus. But we've assumed in the past, like, okay, it's, you know, his bond with Zayden's Gail Taryn, like all them together. That's how he's hearing her thoughts. However, he is not responding to her thoughts in this scene. He's also not responding to her thoughts in the Professor Markham waiting outside of his office scene. He is just reading her facial expressions. Quote, I shove a thought at him, but there's no response. Maybe we have a one-way communication thing going on over here because I don't think I can talk to him in the same way he does me but that makes it very interesting when she's like I'm alive I'm alive I'm alive and he's like yes you're alive and she's like I didn't realize I said that out loud yeah so so I think you know so it's like in his mind his equivalent to her doors for him Taryn and Andarna in here in in her mental archives in his Arisha Hillside version of, of the archives he's talking into the connection between her and him instead of reading her mind but we've gotten so many hints that he can in some way shape or form read her mind 
or there is some kind of deeper connection here to her thoughts and feelings that she is aware of. So I wonder if it's like the bond between them that that you're talking about here. And then separately, again, it's like those shadows, right? The shadows like caressing her mind and and almost like the shadows have like that stronger, again, not like a mind reading ability, but they can pick up on those secrets. And it. How would the shadows have heard the I'm alive, I'm alive, I'm alive, or the other things like that she says, you know, throughout the book that he responds to? even though so here's one thing I do want to address yes this could absolutely be a mate's thing if you know it's just like mind-to-mind open way communication and they don't have to speak through their little holes I don't think so because we've pretty much established they do have to speak through their little holes in their archives or holes on the Arisha Hill. Now, the other option is the intrinsic that has been going across the internet like crazy. Is Zayden an intrinsic? Is Zayden an intrinsic? Is that his second signet? I want to address a major pushback that a lot of people have said. And that is a lot of people are saying, well, if he's an intrinsic, does that make him any better than Dane? I absolutely think it makes him better than Dane. Because here's the big thing. Dane is using information from Violet to go and rat her out to then go kill an entire group of people. Zayden is not doing that. In Zayden's POV chapter, it says putting up his shields to give her privacy. He does that on a regular basis, I am assuming, if this is the correct thing. He is not using this information to snitch on her that we know of again. And I I really do trust Rebecca to make a strong distinction to these male characters. Now, I'm not going to lie. Will it be a good look for Zayden? Of course not. Of course it won't. But Rebecca Yaros has said on multiple occasions that he has many secrets. This is a morally gray man. This is not someone who is just like a good guy, 100%. You know, he is morally gray for a reason. He cuts down people like nobody's fucking business. And Rebecca Yaros has been very open that he has many secrets. It's why we're not getting a whole book of Zayden POV yet. Literally in this chapter, it says the signet reflects who you are at the core of your being. And Violet reflects Zayden has secrets. It's just further ingraining. This guy is not someone we can fully trust yet. Am I in love with him? Absolutely. But do I think that he's going to be a totally like, you know, white or black person when it comes to morals? Absolutely not. He is morally gray. And that's what I love about him. I do, again, going back to my trust in Rebecca to be able to make a strong distinction between Dane using his powers for evil and Zayden using his powers in a more, I'm not going to say innocent way, but I will say in a way that does not point him to being a terrible person. Am I rooting for him being an intrinsic? I'm not sure if I'm rooting for it. Do I believe in the theory? More and more I read this book, yeah, I do believe in this theory, but I do want to be very clear that it does not make him on the same level as Dane. I'm not going to say the same level I think that if he is an intensic then there is still major invasion of privacy there and that would be a huge you know like we're talking about how this is five books and we do think that they are going to be end game what in the world could happen <laughs> over these next four books right and I wonder if he is an intensic that that would be a huge issue between the two of them that he has been, even if it is, I'll call it innocently reading her mind and giving her privacy on on the bigger things or or using the knowledge for good, whatever that might be. The fact remains that he still did it. Yes. And he's not snitching on her that we know of. But he still is doing it in the first place, though. Sometimes. (laughs) Not all the time, though. (laughs) Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I don't know. When we get to Akatar, I'm going to remind you of this moment, by the way. Just so you know, I will remind you of this moment when we get to the third part of Akatar. 
I will remind you of this moment. Okay, you're right. Yes, I do love my morally gray men. Don't get me wrong. No, we talked about Mira taking some L's, but we got to give her credit because we love Mira, of course. We got to talk about Mira just like really being a badass here because again, I'm never done talking about Mira. So from something as small as how she uses her magic to send Riddick just flying backwards to how she lays out the reality of war and that things don't go according to protocol when Second Squad just starts acting like Captain Hindsight. Oh my gosh. I like If you watch South Park, Captain Hindsight, that is the entire scene right there. You know, she's like, you are also fucking literal. Like I said earlier, you know, it really reminds you of attending a class and then going out into the real world to apply your learnings and just nothing what you studied. Absolutely. Never use the Pythagorean theorem in my life in the real world. Absolutely not. I do love her chewing out Dane. That shit is priceless. And it's like so well-deserved with just how out there Dane is being with his hatred of Zayden and Violet's connection. This just really goes to show how Mira and Dane would have handled things very differently when it comes to Violet, where Dane was all like, you have to leave. I know you bonded two really powerful dragons and you're kicking ass, but you're fragile and sad. You have to bond the lesser dragon. You have to leave the quadrant and go to the archives. You have to like, don't egg on Jack. Like he's all about like protecting her, keeping her safe by keeping her weak. But Mira accepts that even though she does not believe Zayden is good for her, there is nothing, quote, this is a quote, and this will be really important in a moment. There is nothing anyone can do about the choice of dragons. And then she goes in for the kill with Dane. I never would have told her to find you after crossing the parapet. Fuck yeah! (laughs) I do see a really big hole in Mira's logic here because she says to Dane, the dragons don't bother with the opinions of mere humans now, do they? But then when Dane leaves, she's talking to Zayden and Violet and she tells them that they are supposed to lay down the law with Taryn and Segale. Basically saying, give Segale and Taryn your opinions and lay down the law, even though she literally just said dragons don't bother with the opinions of mere humans now do they so i'm noticing some discrepancies that is a very good point and i will looking at from mira's point of view you know like nobody can do anything about the choices of dragons like who they choose to bond that was essentially like that is a huge decision that is really all up to the dragons now of Zayden, for instance, saying to Sigal, like, hey, um, no, like, let's not go yet. Like, more of, like, inserting his opinion is different than wanting to be bonded to her. So that's where I saw that difference. I will say the Zayden I am here speech just melts my fucking heart. The fact that he was like, I'm the one who left Garrick in charge of my entire wing so that I could fly across the fucking country to be here. And it's just like, oh, it just... Beep, 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 beep. I love it so much. <laughs> now it is time to settle this. We've gotten this theory so many freaking times and it is time to talk it out. Does Mira know what's happening? Is she tied to the rebellion? Does she know that Brennan is alive? Let's talk about why we disagree and why we do think that Mira is still in the dark. I do not believe that Mira knows the extent of what is happening specifically with the revolution. I do not believe that she knows that Brennan is alive, definitely. And I don't believe that she is essentially like a double agent or anything like that. First of all, like let's look at the timeline here. When the rebellion was going on six years ago, Mira was starting in the writer's quadrant. And it's my understanding within a year is when Brennan died and the rebellion ended. Now, Mira was holed up in Besgaius and did not have the proximity to the rebellion like Brennan did or any incoming info to have a different opinion than what Besgaius was feeding her. We know what kind of information the leadership is willing to give out now, which is very minimal. I can only imagine what it was during the war. I have a lot of questions about children of the rebels being there at Besgaius 
Skyeth, but that's a question for a different day. She wasn't near it like Brennan was or even like their mom was. However, the bigger reason that I believe she's in the dark is her attitude and her prejudice against these marked ones that we're seeing like just right out here in the open. We've already talked about. First and foremost, back at chapter one, she had warned Violet to steer clear of that traitor's son. She doesn't want to acknowledge Zayden like whatsoever and she makes it very clear that she doesn't trust him and she doesn't want him near her sister. I don't feel like she has any idea of what's going on or that Brennan is alive and what secrets are being hidden here because she just kind of takes what's given to her at face value because ultimately she is a soldier. She takes her orders and does what's best from there. I do, however, firmly believe she knows more than Violet and she knows more about the history between Zayden and their mom. For instance, she's asking Violet if she knows why he hates their mom so much, why quote unquote kids like him are put on the para and then Zayden cuts her off. Yes. There's so much more to the story that we've already talked about here on the last podcast episode that others like Mira and Dane know about between Zayden and their mom. But Violet doesn't. And she still doesn't know. I, I really do think, again, that the 107 scars are just like super surface level of what is really going on. Also, when it comes to like switching sides, I don't know. I don't think she would switch sides because of her hatred for the rebels. And the only way that I can see her switching sides is if she personally feels betrayed by their mom, maybe, or and this is the biggest one, of course, is if Brennan himself convinces her. That right there. That is the only way I could see her switching sides. I don't think, I, this is sad, but I don't think she would do it for Violet. I don't think, I think she would be like Zayden's the problem here and she would more get mad at Zayden. Yeah. Yes. But Brennan and her have that connection that we already know is so established from the book of Brennan and him helping her survive. I think that that is definitely going to come into play where he, where it's going to be a big reveal for her too. And she's going to have to be going through everything that Violet's going through where she's questioning all of the information that she's been given and what she's going to do with that being so rooted in the Navarre side of the war. I just don't know if she's going to go over. I don't. And I think that's how she's going to die. I think she's going to die ah, in a battle. Just, we're going right I'm for the so kill sorry. there. <laughs> I'm, but I do. I do think that that's going to be like the big tragedy of Mira is like maybe she'll be killed at a battle where Brennan is present. And that's how she finds out Brennan is alive. Oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> wow. All right. I'm going to switch subjects that's here. Some going Shakespeare <laughs> shit right there. <laughs> Before we leave Montserrat, I have to point out something here. You know who is not mentioned in the entire second stretch of their time at Montserrat? Imogen. All right. So we started talking about Imogen's signet of wiping memories in the last episode and the theory about how she frequently uses her powers on those around her to make them forget her signet. I don't know if that part of Imogen's ability to obliviate is true or not, but I can say with quite a bit of confidence here that she does use this signet on her squad and the outpost writers here at Montserrat. So I'm going to be using the Reddit dissertation from What the Frenchie again. We'll make sure to link it in the show notes. When the second squad first arrives at Montserrat, we know Imogen is there with them. Remember, she comments on how weird certain girls are when Violet and Mira reunite, so we know that she is there. But three days later, the morning after Zayden unexpectedly arrives, Violet narrates that they've been split into two groups for the day. So, group number one, Rihanna, Sawyer, Sienna, Nadine, and Heaton spent the morning with Devera studying previous battles at the outpost, and then they went out on patrol. Meanwhile, Dane, Riddick, Liam, Emery, Quinn, and Violet 
and Zayden spent the morning on a two-hour flight around the surrounding area, and now they're swapping with the first group. Every single person except Emogen is mentioned at least once, not only in that group right there, but also like when they're like scurrying to get out of there with their dragons and all of that. It is so pointed that she is not included in any of this discussion about Second Squad after that first day. Now that that's established, let's turn our attention to Zayden and his ulterior motives with his unexpected visit to this eastern outpost. Of course, he came because Sigal couldn't be away from Terran for more than three days, or at least, you know, like that's what we're led to believe. But there is something more here. When they hurriedly leave the outpost, Violet notices that Zayden's pack is considerably smaller than the one he arrived with. Hmm. She thinks it is because he left some stuff there to help get her out. But at the ending's plot twist, we can safely assume he was delivering supplies to the Griffin Flyers. Something I do also want to point out is when she's talking about his pack being significantly smaller, if you're listening to the audiobook during this section, the audio quality changes, which typically means that it was recorded in a separate setting and needed to be plugged into the audio. Yeah, <laughs> this is some audiobook shit that I learned when I narrated my first audiobook. And when you replug it in, if the audio levels aren't balanced, it's going to sound a little bit different. But that also means is because maybe an editor passed through or maybe like one of the final edits, Rebecca decided to add that line in. So the audiobook narrator re- needed to record it and then plug it into the script. This is my headcanon. I do not have this confirmed, but if that is the case, that means that this line is notable. Wow. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) So we can conclude that Imogen was part of the secret mission that Zayden was on. We know that she is involved later on at the ending of this book. So she probably is here too, which is why I am fully on board with this theory that she made everyone forget about her by using her signet so she could go deliver the supplies, the weapons, whatever it is there to these Griffin Flyers. Yes, absolutely. 100% that is what happened. And then to follow that up is I don't think that she needs to touch people. Nope, I don't think so either. The way that Dane does. So because like that's a lot of people that she has to touch, not just the second squad, but also Mira and and everybody else where it's like, hey, where's that crazy pink haired lady, right? Like she's a little hard to not remember. not not (laughs) noticeable. I think that that also really reinforces the possibility that leadership doesn't know about the signet of hers. Delicious. I love this. Oh my God. So we do need to talk about this Griffin's attack because first and foremost, why are they attacking? I don't understand the logic here. And I really do believe that we're going to get more info on this. Quote, this feels like the same thing we would never hear about in Battle Brief. This is supposed to have a connecting moment to us. You know, we we know that they're after weapons. We know that they're looting because of the Battle Brief at the very beginning. But we're also... This is confusing because if Zayden's pack is considerably smaller, we do assume that he did a supply shipment, which means that he went to the Griffins to be like, here's your weapons. But then they're attacking. What what would prompt them on this attack? Because I would assume it's the same Griffin flyers. That's the big assumption here. Did these marked ones deliver weapons or supplies at the very least to the enemy who then immediately attacks the outpost? Again, did Zayden and Imogen know that they were going to attack or could the attack have been orchestrated as 
part of a diversion for Imogen to rejoin her squad and flee. I don't feel like the whole attack happened because Imogen needed to get back. The point of her power is that they forget she was missing. You don't need a whole Griffin attack for her to sneak back in, right? But there is definitely a big info gap here with why the Griffin Flyers attacked this outpost. It could correlate to the possible Wyvern and Venom nearby that Mira mistook for dragons. Although again, we don't know if it was nearby. We're just because that was seven months ago. But also there's a big information gap too about who Zayden and Imogen are helping and if it is the same group, which I think it probably is, then why are they okay with this attack happening? I suppose it's not like on a village, it's on an outpost, so it's all against the military. But again, why? Like, what does the outpost have? Does the outpost have anything? Whatever the reasons for the attack, the fact still stands that Imogen was not present and nobody bats an eye. And I am convinced she used her powers to make everyone forget about her at Montserrat while she went off on her secret mission. I love your Imogen stand. Like, I love how much you love Imogen and just like peel apart everything. It makes me so happy. So as they're fleeing, Violet says, quote, I'll never be able to live with myself if something happened to Dane on my account. I just wanted to pull this line because how fucking delectably sweet is this? Because considering what happens at the end of this book, if the roles were reversed, which they very much are, like something is going to happen to Violet on Dane's account. Like, is he going to have the whole, I can't live with myself, Violet? No, because he's like, bye. He already said something like that. Like he wouldn't know what to do. Like he couldn't live with himself if anything and happened yet- to her. And it's like, dude, you literally just said you would let her die because of the rules. And then at the end of the book, he's like, I'll miss you, Violet. Meaning like, I'll miss you when you're dead, bitch. <laughs> like, I just don't understand him. Okay. The kiss on top of the, you know, as they're like launching into the sky to leave Montserrat. I do wonder, though, like, does Zayden actually think that they're in trouble? Is he just distracting her? Is this like one last kiss before we face our death? Because I I don't think so, even though she, she, meaning Violet, says this might be our last one. I think she might be thinking that. I personally do not think Zayden's in that camp. Or is this like, God fucking damn it, I missed you so much. And this is the first time no one is around and I need to fucking kiss you. That's my headcanon, obviously. <laughs> he does say, leave for me. Violet. Is this because he does not want the Griffin Flyers to come and blow his cover in front of her because it does say pure regret is in his face? I really took this at face value where he was just (laughs) stalling until Taryn could arrive and he knew that a kiss would stall her. And when he's like, leave for me, Violet, like he knows that she cares about him and she's not willing to leave. And so it's like, hey, hello, like you care about me. Like my opinion matters to you. Trust me, you need to leave. Like that's how I interpreted that. However, I I mentioned Taryn and I need to point him out here. Taryn says he was doing what could be done before he arrived. What does that mean? He knows about the Griffin Flyers and how Zayden is helping them and they're technically the good guys. But he wouldn't be helping them and then going against the 12 dragons who are just stationed there. 12 dragons are essentially his, you know, his peers. When he says doing everything he can, is he putting up warts? Is he using his own magic to keep the Griffins out? It isn't adding up to which side he's on. I assumed that he's on the same side as Zayden and obviously Sigal and all of them, which they would be on the side technically of the Griffin Flyers, but he's doing everything he can to go against the Griffin Riders or doing everything he can to protect the 12 dragons. I don't No, I think that this is like a Snape at Half-Blood Prince moment where he's like fighting at the end of the book with the Death Eaters and 
but even though he's technically still working for Dumbledore, even though he literally just killed him. God, these are such good questions. I don't know. Right? I don't know. <laughs> Which side is Taryn on? Doing whatever he can for who? Who is he Who is he working for? Maybe he was pretending to be on the side of Navarre, but he was just kind of like distracting, like swooping in front of people being like, oh, sorry. Oh, oh didn't, didn't see you there. Like, you know, like just kind of trying to alleviate. I don't think that's a Taryn thing to do. He's such a bloodthirsty guy. But the wards were also down. Did he have anything to do with the wards going down? <gasps> I don't I, I don't I'm still a little bit confused about how that works while there's definitely not a love triangle within this book like thank god I do get the tiniest bit of love triangle in some of these chapters or more it's more of like a caught between my guy best friend and new boyfriend and they hate each other vibes yeah I love that trope absolutely right? <laughs> okay like at Montserrat when it was just all on display for everyone to see between Zayden and Dane and then Mira's just scolding them in the stairwell like children like I just love that and then, you know, when they're waiting for Professor Markham, there's such a stark contrast between how Zayden and Dane support Violet. Zayden seeks Violet out. He brings her coffee, figuring that this is where she would already be. And he's also saying like such swoon, swoon worthy things to her. He's encouraging her to speak into his mind too. He's like, come on, give it a try. You can do it. And I do think that's a little like, let me distract you. Like, let me be here for you and support you. But I also do think it's like, let me support you and teach you in this moment. He's also opening up to her about he hasn't slept well since his father left for the war, which is six years. A, this is showing a major vulnerability, which is not a Zayden-y thing to do. It's also showing us the difference between Violet and her mother's relationship, where it's like super cold, and the father-son relationship that Zayden and his dad have that I'm, we're assuming is very close. I'm assuming that when her mom went out to war, you know, because she was also fighting the rebellion you know like she wasn't fighting for the rebellion but she was fighting against them I would assume she wasn't home very much but we don't get any instance of oh darn mom wasn't here so I couldn't sleep like it was just very much like kind of just part of being a military family at some point I can't remember the exact language that she uses but she's essentially like yeah and then my mom just totally ignored me and then you know yeah. like she, she barely talked to her even when she was there so it really didn't really matter to Violet whether her mom was there or not there. Going back to the scene with Professor Markham, you know, Dane, he's there for himself. He is surprised when he runs into Violet and Zayden. And when Violet says that she's been waiting for hours, he tries to play catch up, like, you know, seeing what she needs. And, and none of this, what he offers is what would actually help her because all she wants to do is be here waiting. And he doesn't get that the way that Zayden totally understood and brought her coffee and I just I love that Zayden knows her so well like Dane is like do you need do you need breakfast like what do you need Violet? and Zayden is like speaking into her head he's like no dumbass she doesn't obviously like it is so obvious to him what she needs again like he knows her on such a molecular level now and it's ironic because Dane and Violet have been best friends since they were five years old. They literally known each other most of their life. Zayden is very new in her life still, and yet he knows exactly the ins and outs of Violet 101. And, and then when Violet gets the good news that her sister is okay, Dane jumps into action to hold her, to comfort her, to share a moment of relief for someone that they both know and love. And Zayden leaves. Like that was really pointed right there. Zayden leaves. In this instance, he is the outsider. When he wasn't seconds ago before Professor Markham showed up, like when it's Zayden and Violet, Dane's the outsider. But the moment that anyone else, like Mira, kind of comes into the picture, Zayden's the outsider. I do also want to point out that Dane is making shit all about him again. The second Mira's okay, sweeps her into her arms. Violet, she's okay. Don't worry. I've got you, Violet. Don't worry, Violet. He's making this shit 
all about him and how much he cares. God, I just, I hate how (laughs) narcissistic and selfish he is. And he pretends like it's just the total opposite. He pretends like he's so fucking selfless and does everything for her. I hate Dane so much. What was I saying about a redemption arc earlier? I don't remember. No, but I did not get that same vibe. <laughs> you all know that I am a Dane hater as much as the next person, but I definitely read this part as he took this opportunity to, as, as a way of reconnecting with Violet when she needed it most from someone who also knows and loves Mira. That's how mm-hmm. I read it. <laughs> I was like, you motherfucker trying to make this shit all about you and Violet yeah. again. I fucking hate it. So right after Dane, you know, just but Violet has <laughs> has his moment with her violet doesn't collapse and let go with dane she instead says she needs to go to the only place she knows she can fully let go which is indarna <laughs> she goes to indarna and to her shoulder and just cries and cries and cries and indarna just like loves her and like you know i really do think you're right you said it i think it was a few episodes ago that indarna might just be her main squeeze dragon like taryn is definitely the dragon in this because she's can ride him and she can't ride indarna but indarna is quote fucking huge now so i would assume that you know this emotional connection that she has to her that's on full display right now is massively going to come into play as she i don't think she's going to bond or like choose one over the other i don't think this is going to be one of those situations but i do think she's going to get a much closer relationship with andarna based on the emotional connection that they have so just a few random lines that i want to dissect here when zayden admits that he knows her birthday and says you can't know how to ruin someone without understanding them first this contradicts the theory that he knew about her from brennan and was already falling in love with violet before he even met her like, or did he get this information about her birthday from Brennan or, you know, like his shadows, like so much other info that he gets? How, what do you think? I personally do not think that he was falling in love with Violet before he met her. I don't think that at all. I do think that he knew of her from Brennan, whether he was like writing to Brennan and being like, when's her birthday, man? Like, I need to get her flowers. <laughs> I don't see you know? that like, at all. Yeah. I don't no. either. I, I'm leaning towards shadows here. I mean, again, not to just make everything Zayden's and intrinsic because I'm, I'm sold on it, but I'm also not like rooting for it like I've said but I do see also if he can read minds it would be a lot easier for him to find shit out intrinsic aside I do I am leaning towards shadows in this situation but not so much about like how he got the information he wasn't rooting for it. he was not like he, but he, he probably thought that she was on the side with same as Mira exactly and her mom okay yeah I think that when he first met her I mean she thinks Brennan is dead she has no idea the rebellion is still going I think that he strongly and rightfully assumed that she was on Mama Sorengale's side. Yeah. And I mean, she was also learning how to be a scribe. Like he probably knew that about her. Knowing what the scribes know and are taught, of course he's going to assume that. So it kind of makes sense that he was like, I'm rooting tootin' ready to ruin this bitch. Like, but I do think when he saw her there was that attraction. So I do think that the attraction started there. I do not think he was in love with her prior to that, though. Another big line that was just like neon signs to me. Later, as our story gets into the middle of May, Violet notes that, quote, Dane is acting weird as fuck. Friendly one minute and indifferent the next. This is after his dad and Violet's mom ran into her and Zayden. So what I think is that this is the key hint to him now working with leadership and literally just not knowing how to act around Violet. The line that follows that is that Zayden is getting more secretive himself. So I really do think that things are ramping up on both sides of the Bruin revolution and Violet is just super in the dark about all of it because Violet briefly wonders where Zayden has gone and then he's back so quickly. 
About that part, though, back so quickly. If he is just like flying all around the country, he's not coming back super quickly. So in the last episode, we talked about Zayden having a resource like a blacksmith or somebody else along those lines close there to Beskayeth. I wonder if there is more going on close to Beskayeth, and that is why it's such a pointed line that he's gone and then coming back so quickly. Like there's a rebellion camp or like yeah that the rebellion is closer than we think i yeah i could definitely see that i could totally see that oh my god i do see where you're coming from with with the whole dane friendly as fuck one minute and different the next i do see that as being a huge hint I'm still I'm going to stick to my guns, though, and say that he's still he started working with leadership a lot earlier and he was just like kind of playing spy and acting all friendly. But that would be a big clue. I will definitely give you that. So Violet's playing 20 questions with Zayden. She wants to get to know him. And I'm all for like, I love a questions game. Like on long road trips, I will literally like pull up a Pinterest article of like, what are questions to ask your partner? And Brett hates it. He would hate it too. He'd be like, why can't we just talk like normal people? (laughs) But I do love that she's trying to get to know him. And one of the first questions that Violet asks him is, do you have any siblings? A lot of people speculate that Zayden has a sister of some sort, or his sister might be a Griffin flyer. Personally, I do not think so. Zayden is really good at keeping secrets, but he is dead set on not upfront lying to Violet. He does say, quote, no, stop being weird. That is literally his his line in regards to the sister. He also like, you know, drops his pen in battle brief as she's asking him questions. He's like, what is like, what is going on with you? And I do think it's funny because he's de- he's done this total 180 at Montserrat. And then she does like a 85% or 85 degree turn. And he's like, stop being weird, girl. Meh. Like, <laughs> this is so funny. This is such a cool moment. This is this is probably one of the most beautifully written chapters, in my opinion, in this book. And that is the first war games. Taryn is, you know, landing and he's like scooching Kath out of the way, trying to get him to move, which like, God, I fucking love Taryn. But he shows up and he's wearing some new, you know, some new threads. He's got his saddle on. And he says, quote, just because your body is built differently than others does not mean you don't deserve to keep your seat. It takes more than a few strips of leather and a pommel to define a rider. (sighs) I love Taryn. It's such a supportive, encouraging father figure moment of Taryn's. And this is also a part that really resonates with individuals with chronic illness who feel represented in this book. We've had quite a few of you reach out to us in messages. And and first of all, we just want to say thank you for sharing your stories and experiences. And we hope you do we do you some justice here. Sometimes you need accommodations so that you can tap into your other strengths. It does not mean that it's weak. It's just a fact. And this is exactly what Violet does. She needed this weight of not being able to stay on her seat despite her best efforts off of her shoulders in order to fully manifest her power. And I just love that, that Taryn and Zayden, but specifically Taryn, who allows this to happen in the first place, they understand that. They understand Violet on such a core level that it's really beautiful. I just love it so much. And also, this really shows Zayden listened to Mira and he found a way for her to keep her seat. I don't think that he had the saddle in progress or even had the idea for the saddle when they were at Montserrat. Quite a bit of time has passed, or not a lot of time, but several weeks have passed. And I think that when Mira said, find a way to keep her in her seat, he really took that to heart. And that is when he started truly thinking outside the box. I agree completely. And I think that that was a moment where he was like, you know, when when you're starting to date someone new, you want the people who are very important to that person in their life to like you. Like um, answering the door instead of (laughs) having to break it down. (laughs) 
And when you say break it down, I didn't like actually like break breakdown. Definitely it burst like, open. That's for sure. I kicked it, it open. open. Yes. She did tell that story in her matron of honor speech I at my did. wedding and it was I flawless. I do think that this is kind of, I don't, I do not think it's entirely this by any means, but I do think there's a hint of, I want to get in good graces with the sister. Like, you know, there is this moment of, I want the people who are important to Violet in her life to trust me because then it's also an easier way for Violet to trust him too. And again, I don't think that this was the entire motive that played into this decision. I do think a lot of it was Jesus fucking Christ, this girl cannot keep her seat. And I know she needs to, I know Taryn wants to be able to like release all of his power, all that kind of stuff. But I do think that that was like a little hint that played into this decision. I have to ask, did the same person who made the daggers make the saddle? I definitely think so. I think so too. I don't think it would be made in Orisha because if he's going away and coming back quickly, Orisha's so fucking far away. There's a lot of speculation that Brennan might have had something to do with the saddle. I think that that would be really, really cool. I think that that's very possible. Of course, then that would have to be made in Orisha. So again, there's lots of questions about how and when and how often is Zayden going to Arisha? But anyway, and, and I know we've talked quite a bit before about the saddle and why Taryn allows us in the first place, kind of like the stigma against that and, and what some of the other writers might be thinking. But what I love here is that Violet pushes back on it at first and then ultimately it doesn't matter what other people think because she's doing what has to be done for her and guess what happens out of it? She gets her signet, you know? Fucking finally. We've talked so much on this podcast about Dane taking L's, but he has upgraded. Dane has upgraded to just existing, being an L. (laughs) I love that since the convo with Mira, he's just pretending like he wasn't being an entire asshat to her this entire year. He's just like, "Uh, yeah, I just want her to be happy. I'm just, I have no issue. Why would I have an issue with it? I just want Violet to be safe. And I do love that when Dane asks like, is that a saddle? Taryn comes back with, no, it's a collar. Like you dipshit. fucking love him and I do want to just point out see episode five where we have a 30 plus minute rant about why Dane just wanting Violet to be safe is so fucking untrue just the fact that we and other characters automatically assumed that he wouldn't be cool with this saddle it shows how loud his actions have been versus his words he is taken aback that Violet would even think he wouldn't agree with the saddle there is nothing that he has done that would make any of us Violet and us as readers ever think he would be okay with the saddle the way that he is about rules it's just such like a well well, I'm so innocent why do you think that I would do that like I just oh that shit pisses me off like nobody's (laughs) business I do love that Zayden then mind speaks to Violet and he's like but it would be more awkward if I kissed you now huh because he was earlier saying like god when you look so stubborn I just want to kiss you which like makes me melt and then he's just like yeah now I'll kiss you in front of Dane that'll be weird and it just I just love their banter I love morally gray men character banter it makes me so happy one of the things that I enjoy so much about this scene is it's so much in the writing there's so much in the writing but there's this moment where Violet has like a I'm a king of the world and it's because she's sitting on top of Taryn she's strapped in she's actually able to for the first time enjoy being on the back of the world's greatest roller coaster aka her dragon and during this moment the word choice is perfect. It says power surges in my veins, crackling with a life all of its own, jolting every single one of my senses to a degree that nears pain. And then later it says the power rattles my bones, electricity, sky, power, thunder, lightning, everything is just immersed into her first 
full official dragon ride. I do want to point out why the hell, why the hell did they put a first year with a weak ass dragon in charge of the most important thing in first wing, which is the egg? I think it's because they trust Jack will absolutely defend that fucker (laughs) to the death. I can't wait to talk about that. It's interesting that he goes after Liam instead of Violet here. I think it's because he needs to take out the bodyguard in order to even get to Violet. So that's really why Jack targeted Liam. He knows that he has to kill Liam in order to then kill Violet. And then there's this line. I am the sky and the power of every storm that has ever been. I am infinite. Oh my God, I get chills. This is... This is a perfect line. I will die on the hill that this is a perfect fantasy line. Not only do I get chills and teary-eyed every time I read it, but if this sounds lightly familiar, it should. Two reasons. One, quote, there was a third brother who commanded the sky to surrender its greatest power. This is from the origin of the fables of the Baron. And from the venom in the very end of the book says, quote, you could command the sky to surrender all of its power. And I bet you don't even know what to do with it, do you? We're going to get way more into these theories. And yes, we have seen the resurrection video. You guys are amazing and have tagged us in it like 45,000 times. We love it. We cannot wait to dive into it. We're so excited. Please keep tagging us and thank it makes us so happy. I want to make this connection because there is such a major moment that she's wielding officially for the first time that she's aware of it. Yes, she wields when she kisses Aiden for the first time, but this is the first time it's like here. It's really when her her power manifests, right? We're going to talk a little bit more about that here in today's segment section. But yes, it's really and truly when it fully manifests versus just kind of like poking the poking. <laughs> yeah, she is. <laughs> <But> <laughs> The connection of these words, of the word of power, I am infinite. You don't know what to do with it, do you? All of these things connecting together is not an accident. And I cannot wait to see where this goes. For right now, let's all celebrate our girl Violet manifests her signet and she can fucking wield lightning. Okay. I don't even know where to start here. This is Lexi's shit right here. When magic comes up in fantasy books, this is her shit. When I was like writing this part for the outline, like I genuinely like had to stand up and like walk. I was like, I don't even know where to begin. Like, where do I begin with this? I'm going to try to do this justice and I'm going to try to not make this an hour long here. So first, let's examine the way that Violet manifests her signet because it's really uniquely important and it says a lot about her character. She possesses a very powerful offensive weapon of a signet when a big part of her identity has been wrapped up in not being a killer. She's put her own life further at risk in order to not identify as a killer. Remember when everybody barged in when she was sleeping to try to kill her? She never went for the kill. She was like stabbing every other part of their body except for kills. Violet needed this big, raw, targeted emotion to finally be able to fully manifest this intense power. You know, Zayden saw a flicker of it in the heat of their first kiss, and she clearly exhibits it later when she um, let's go with him. But I really do wonder if her power would have turned in on itself and she would have been killed, you know, which is something that she's very, very afraid of that is very, very possible the longer and longer it takes for her to manifest her signet. I wonder if it actually would have happened if this really big emotional event did not occur and giving her the opportunity to finally be able to channel this enormous power. It's like anger and hatred needed to draw out this lightning wielding power. And I do believe that ultimately this was Jack's purpose in the story, being that level one villain to identify her as a 
lightning wielder and help her kind of go through the process of being a killer as well. So now let's speculate what lightning really represents in Violet. So remember, her signet reflects who she is at the core. Taryn enables her with power, but that power transforms into her unique signet based on her identity. (laughs) No wonder she is so freaked out that she's now literally a killing machine. Like that would definitely freak me out too. It'd be really awesome, but (laughs) it'd freak me out. You know, we've gotten a few hints in the past that she's lightning quick. So perhaps lightning references to her speed. I I feel like that's kind of a lame answer, to be honest. But I, it could be a contributing factor. You always got to keep an eye out for those keywords there. Then there's also her mom wields storms, and then Taryn's name means thunder. So there's obviously a connection there, especially considering what Nicole was just saying about the sky, the power. There's so many connections to all of this. You know, Also, her dad, he did say that she's the best of her mother and him. Her mother being the storm, being sky power, and then him being you know intelligence. So something to that effect there, that she's more like her mom than she thought. But none of this really defines who she is at her core. And I think that the fact that it isn't obvious in the story is is notable. Maybe we don't know the exact core reason why yet. Thoughts? It's interesting you say it's not very obvious. For me, I took it very much at face value where like the power of being a lightning wielder, the electricity, the fierceness, the kaboom literally of thunder that follows it shows the fiery crackling nature that is violet she is quick-witted she is someone who is not afraid to stand up for the little guy i mean andarna at thrushing is a perfect example of that she is someone who is not afraid to be big and to play big here true so that's that's really what i took it again she says i am infinite what a fucking line oh my god I want that tattooed on my body like I really took it pretty much at face value and it to me really clicked in of like oh that that does resemble who she is at her core now there is the side of her at her core that is more you know restorative that is about like uncovering solving the mystery you know like all that kind of stuff so I do think that that might be you know an element of her second signet which we will get into in a future episode so that's really how I took it is the I am infinite line that's who she is at her core there are also just got to mention this there are a lot of theories swirling around about Violet being part venom and that's why she can channel the power of the sky because she's drawing from a raw energy source and her dragon so that's why she would be part venom I don't want to go down this rabbit hole today it is just worth mentioning here. I honestly don't believe that she's part Venon. I definitely do think that a Venon had to do with her mom's sickness or her injury when she was pregnant with her. That's a whole other discussion here. Last thing I'll note here is lightning is such a rare and powerful signet. The last lightning wielder that we know of was over a century ago. So this signet, it enables her to protect kingdoms. She can destroy enemies from afar. And most importantly, she can kill Venon with a single strike when she aims right. Nicole briefly mentioned this, but I'm going to pull the full quote out from the origin from the Fables of the Baron, which is the forbidden book, remember? But it was the third brother who commanded the sky to surrender its greatest power, who finally vanquished his jealous sibling at a great and terrible price. (gasps) We know that the jealous sibling was a venom. The brother who killed the venom brother was a lightning wielder. And what was this great and terrible price? Like, what if this is a prophecy of some sort? Yes, 100%. So there is a theory floating around. And actually, Ernzo, E-R-N-Z-O, tagged us in this post this morning by Brooks Nook. We'll put it in the link in the show notes. That Violet 
being the person, the third brother here in this, in the, it, it's so Deathly Hallows. Like all I can think of is Deathly That's Hallows. That's me too. <laughs> we do. Yeah. <laughs> it does sound very prophetic, prophesy-etic, whatever the word would be here. But the theory here is that Violet might kill Mira or Brennan because in this prophecy, the commander of the sky, the third brother, vanquished his jealous sibling. I'm afraid it's going to be Mira. If it was going to be one of them, it would definitely be her. But she also already has that power. So it's like, I I hear what you're saying. And I, I love all the good theories. I think that it's more of a prophecy that she is the key because we'll get to this a little bit when when Zayden is like, oh my God, you can wield lightning, you know, that she is the key to not just the kingdom, but the continent's survival. Oh, like because she vanquished the jealous sibling. The jealous sibling is the venom. Yes. Yes. Okay. I, oh, you're taking it less literally. I like that. I like that. But in it, the jealous sibling is the one who did not have a dragon or a griffin who could not channel. So because yes. he was so jealous of their powers, he channeled from the earth and therefore became the first venom. Oh my God. This is the shit that I get chills about because it's so in the background of this story. It is. It's not even the background. It's in the ground of this story it is deep six feet under in the story and yet when you reread it and really pull it out you're like oh my god we're just sitting here like sprinkling seeds on it watering (laughs) it and then grow (laughs) bitch grow (laughs) oh my god Something that really stood out to me when she does wield, though, is the bluish streak of silver death slams into the tower. Silver. The silver in her hair might also be a representative of the lightning. I do agree with you. I do think it has something to do with Venom and her mom when she was pregnant and yada, yada, yada. We have no idea the fleshed outness of that theory, but it's something that's kind of lingering in the back of our minds. I do think that there's, again, going back to your earlier question about where is the, you know, the core of her being? I do think the silver in her hair does represent that this power has always been in her and making that silver connection there. Interesting. All right, Nicole, it is finally (laughs) time for us to talk about the very popular theory. Is Jack actually still alive? My friends, if I had a dollar for every time someone has messaged us about Jack being alive, I would be able to afford a goddamn house. I'm just going to sit back and let you take this. Like, Lexi has a rant about to happen. So first and foremost, most like let's talk about the theory the theory is based off of us as readers and in turn violet not seeing a body we've all learned from experience that if there's no body we can't 100 percent be sure of the death let's recap here why can't we confirm jack's dead body violet wields lightning to strike a tower which jack was on and when the tower falls we assume that he was buried and killed under the rubble so his body is buried under a bunch of rocks aka we don't know for a capital f fact that he is dead because violet was a assuming that he was dead. We also aren't at formation the next morning to hear the death roll. Was that possibly on purpose where we didn't hear his death actually? I've even seen that some speculate that his signet could like jolt him back to life. Remember, we talked about that a lot in last episode about what his signet power is, how it is also like an electric energy. So maybe he jolted himself back to life since he could, you know, wield electric energy or something like that. Another variation of this Jack Comes Back theory is that he turns into a venom. If there's any character in this book who would go full bad guy venom who corrupts their soul for power, it is absolutely Jack. He is so so power hungry and he's weakened from this tower falling on him that he draws magic from the source and therefore becomes a venom. Okay, so now that we know why the Siri exists, my fourth wing friends, we are going to have to agree to disagree here if you believe that Jack is still alive. We are not theory shamers like you go, you believe in it. I am going to now respectfully disagree though because he's dead. He is dead. (laughs) 
I am going to state that as a fact. And here is why. So while Violet assumes Jack can't survive the avalanche of rock, we do get confirmation that he's dead from his bonded dragon Bade. Quote, Jack falls down the mountainside in an avalanche of rock that I know he can't survive. I being Violet here. And then it follows. From the way Bade cries beneath us, she knows it too. Everything that we've been taught about how connected dragons are to their writers, this line really does show that Bade knowing it too means that we can now trust Violet's assumption that Jack is indeed dead. Then there's this Venom prediction. Yes, like I said, Jack would definitely be the most likely character to turn into a Venom, but he would have to leave Navarre, which Beskyth is in the center of, to be able to tap into such power. Remember, the wards around Navarre stop all non-dragon magic. He would either have to stay bonded to Bade and leave Navarre, which negates the reason to become a Venon since they don't channel magic from dragons like he does as a bonded writer, or he would no longer be bonded to Bade and have to find another way to trek out of the kingdom. And as far as we know, these bonds, they don't break. Like his life is literally tethered to that bond again, which is why Bade knows more than anyone that he's dead. Lastly, if he wasn't actually dead, I feel like this would really cheapen our girl Violet's hero's journey. She's not a killer and is now coming to grips with having to kill someone. That's a big part of the aftermath of Jack's death. He is someone who deserved to die, but she hates that it was her, that she was directly responsible for killing him, even if it was him. And she has to learn how to live with this and what her signet, and thus she, is capable of doing. If Jack turns out to not be dead, I really do feel like it cheapens this big moment for her identity. So from a storytelling perspective, it doesn't make any sense that to go back on this fact that she killed Jack. This is a big moment for her. I think that we just have to let it be and we can all move on that Jack is indeed dead. Repost, retweet, share to my story. Absolutely. <laughs> yes. I will say this. If he does come back, we're going to look like fucking asshats. Oh, <laughs> that is so, like, I, I should know. Yes. If he does come back, I will be the very first person to say I was wrong. <laughs> I will make a bet with you all. If you want to believe, like, you know, Nicole and I have bets. If Jack does indeed come back, say the word, we'll make a bet and I will do it. I'm afraid for the thing you just <laughs> said. <laughs> oh, God. We're going to get so many emails. I'm terrified. <laughs> So here's a line, though, after Violet comes down, she's, you know, wretches. It's so sweet. Taryn covers her with his wings, you know, like gives her that privacy to just vomit all her guts up. But after Dane is like, Violet, it's okay. You don't have to use your powers. Meh. Zayden pushes him away and grabs her shoulders. And he says, your signet is lightning, isn't it? And I quote, he looks at me with such intensity as though my answer is the key to whatever he needs. What do you need, Zayden Ryerson? A rebellion? A person to smash? Person to smash? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, he does. Changing my verbiage. Let's try that again. (laughs) A person to strike venom out of the sky? Okay, so yes. So what if it's because he knows lightning can kill Venon because he has also read the fables of the Baron and he knows that the lightning-wielding brother killed the Venon brother. We also find out later on that she certainly can kill Venon when literally Dragonfire doesn't, right? These guys are like, they're White Walkers. They can't be killed except for the one thing that very few people have. So then when Zayden says she'll have the power to defend an entire kingdom, which kingdom is he talking about? Carmel. Right? <laughs> and then Taryn comforts her saying, quote, she is the best hope the kingdom has against the hordes of evil that seek to harm it. <gasps> How in the world did we miss this on the first read? Like, it just went right over my head. But that's exactly what Taryn's referring to. He's not talking about poor Emil and Griffins. He's talking about the Venom. And she is now the key to defeating them. <gasps> 
God. I love this book so much. Speaking of reasons why I love this book. (laughs) I'm going to sit back and relax now. Tag, I'm it. So we enter chapter 29 and 30. First and foremost, I want to talk about what a badass Violet is. She is looking at Zayden, like straight up just looking at him and just like throws a dagger and hits. And he's like, God damn it, that's hot. And I love that. And Rebecca Yaros just knows how to rip my fucking hard out. Quote, all this time, I had this teeny tiny driving hope that I would be like Brennan. And that would be the twist in my little fable that my signet would be mending and I could put all the broken things back together. But instead, I'm made to split them apart. This line just absolutely guts me because it's so many broken things in her life. Her broken family, her dad is dead. Her brother is seemingly dead. Her body and how everyone treats her like she's weaker than everyone else. And she was thinking like, could I put myself back together again? I mean, we also have to not just toss aside that her friendship with Dane is broken. This man has been in her life since she was five, 15 years of her life he has been in it and he's being an asshat. But it also does make me wonder what is her second signet going to be? Today is still not the day that I'm quite ready to dive into that. I want to give her her first signet, lightning wielding the spotlight here today. But, and I've mentioned this before, I really do believe that it has to do with giving energy. I've talked about it being like the defense to her offensive lightning wielding, right? I With these videos that I've seen popping up, I'm starting to really wonder about resurrection as well. I've seen some really good strong points for that. Again, I do not have an outline and all the research in front of me, so I am not going to go down this road quite yet, but I do promise you we will soon enough. We will. We promise. We promise. We promise. But then he says, he's like, hit me. Do whatever you need. Like, just take it out on me. And then, boy, does she. She grabs him and kisses him. And I love that, like, after a beat, he spins her around and pins her against the wall and puts her arms above her head. This is such a common trope in movies, in TV shows, and it makes the fan base rumble like there was just a touchdown at the Super Bowl. Like, this is like the big climactic moment. And I do want to point out that there was a super viral video. I couldn't find it. I was looking for it everywhere of a girl asking her partner to do the same, like, you know, arms above the head thing. She's one of my favorite mom followers. Yeah. On TikTok. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we might be able to find it then. And if we do, we'll put it in the show notes. But he did. He put his arms above her head as she's like, you know, as he's beginning to kiss her. And he even like brings her leg up and she goes, oh, mother. <laughs> like she like, I just want to say friendly reminder to listeners to kindly ask your partner to do shit like this and see what happens if they agree. Absolutely 100% in the camp of, hey, Brett, can you read this chapter of this book, please? You already have your husband read these kind of chapters. I mean, the sweet man he is, like, actually takes notes. I'm going to keep that behind locked doors right there. Thank you. (laughs) I already admitted I get on my knees on this podcast. I don't know if I can do much more. Friendly reminder to our family members, if you are listening to this, please turn it off now. I beg of you, please. (laughs) I am going to talk about all the reasons why this scene is perfect in just a moment. However, I do have one gripe with this particular scene. The amount of times that Zayden says something along the lines of, this isn't what you want. Tell me to stop. Do you know what you're saying? I've noticed this pattern in fantasy books. I'm I'm reading a lot of smut right now in my life, apparently. This is a typical thing. Like the guy's like, are you sure you want this to some degree? And I'm not going to lie. 
I don't love it. It always takes me out of the moment. And maybe it's because I'm a very like, I'm the type of person who when I make my mind up about something and I stick to it, if someone questions me on it, it actually pisses me off. Like you know, to a, my husband have that in common. Yeah, Jeez, it's a Gryffindor thing. I, think, <laughs> I really do think it's a Gryffindor <laughs> thing. But when someone's like, are you sure you want that? It's like, why would you think that you're like, why would you question my judgment? I'm showing you what I want. Look, I love consent. Verbal consent is great. I'm not saying that this is like, don't to get consent by any means. But I do think that actions speak louder than words. There is no way that Zayden could in any universe think mm, she doesn't really want this. Like she is throwing herself at you, my guy. Exactly. And I think that that really does come back to like, you know, like one or two, like, are you sure? It's like, yes. Okay, good. Okay, cool. Yeah. We're all on the same page here. Let's go. But it's almost like he is so, un- he does not feel worthy. And I think that that's the case in a lot of these morally great characters where we do see this pretty frequently in, in, in the books we're reading, where they are unsure of themselves. They feel like they are not worthy. And that is why they're asking. Now, I absolutely agree with you that it kind of was like, okay, dude, Zayden, like she's like, she's made her point. Like you can drop it now. Just enjoy the moment here. I can understand why it's, it's a reflection on his character, having all of that baggage, having all of this uncertainty for himself, not necessarily uncertain about her. And he's like kind of projecting it onto her when again, there's no reason to. And we talked about this in the kiss episode where there might be something that we don't know with Zayden's past and and in relationships, whether it's one night stands or something more, we don't know. But there might have been something where he had his heart broken. Now, I will also say he's lost basically everyone he loves in his life. They have been taken away from him in some form or fashion. So I could also see him being terrified to open himself up to someone because he's afraid. This also might explain the whole don't fall for me shit that we're going to cover later. I think he does say in his POV that he's never fallen for anyone before. Like it's pretty well established that this is a first for him. And I want to be clear. It's not the when I get my hands on you, when I really get my hands on you, I will not be able to stop. That shit is hot. I'm not talking about that. It's the, are you sure you want this? Do you know what you're saying? I think it's the, do you know what you're saying? That really gets me like, I do know what I'm saying. you And I do love that Violet says, stop being so fucking honorable and fuck me, Zayden. Get it, girl? Speaking for all of us. Here's another thing in fantasy that I'm noticing regularly pop up. And this has been in every single fantasy book I have read. There's some kind of, I'm on birth control. I'm taking the fertility suppressant. There's a there's a video, and I'll put it in the show notes, it kills me, with the audio of Charlie the Unicorn, and it says romantic birth control explained like, and it's it's literally quoted, it's a neoplerodon, Charlie, a magical neoplerodon, shun the non-believer, shun, <laughs> it's like, kills me. I love it. I understand why they're here. If we do not get that confirmation, there's the, oh God, is she going to get pregnant thing? However, whenever it's like, I take the fertility suppressant or I take the magical weed and walk around the trunk three times of the magical tree or whatever it is, like, it's been around three times. Stop. Don't forget it. Now you do this and this and this and this and this. Oh my God. Okay. I can understand it feeling kind of taken out of it. Like it's very much a a modern thing that is included here and it can really throw some people off. It doesn't matter to me. Like I I don't, I don't think much about it. Like I thought this with Akatar as well. We had talked about it with that. It's like, okay, cool. It's kind of like that like okay that that's something I don't have to think about when I hear that that is kind of a promise that don't worry our main character is not going to get pregnant here and I think that so 
sometimes, especially with the strong female leads that we are growing accustomed to with this reading, that that is always a possibility after they have sex. And so I think that it's a nice little promise from the author, like, hey, don't worry about this. It's all taken care of. I think it just drives me insane because it's like, stop reminding me that I have this thing that I need to remember, like uh, being a woman. I think this for me, it does take me out of it. But I do like what you're saying here. And like, it's the promise of don't worry, the pregnancy trope is not going to show up here. Something I do also want to point out here is that if Zayden's grandfather was killed in the quadrant when he was bonded to Segal, it means that Fen Ryerson was either born inside the quadrant if Grandma Ryerson was also a part of the quadrant, or when Grandpa Ryerson was out and about on missions and or breaks. There is this line about, you know, no one wants little writer's quadrant babies running around, which I do find funny because Fen Ryerson might have been one of them. That's such a good point. And may I just say the Ryerson men were busy. <laughs> are busy. <laughs> they are. <laughs> yeah, there's no past tense on that. Back to all the reasons why this scene is just beautiful. As much as I would love and trust me, I would love, but Lexi wouldn't let me, to just read this entire scene, I just am going to pull out some highlights. Like I've mentioned multiple times in this podcast, I come from a very YA background, but the second I started reading scenes like this, I was like, I'm never going back. I'm never going back. This is too perfect. I love it. But something I love about this particular sex scene is that there is some awkwardness. There's like, they're on the desk and she's having trouble getting leverage and like getting the right position because he's so <laughs> tall. thing in the hole, right? <laughs> Blunt, but yes, absolutely. <laughs> and I just love that there's not like this perfect angle every single time. I love that there's this little inclusion of like, God damn it, like the stupid desk. Like, I love that. I actually made a note about this too, because I found it also just so, so relatable. relatable. Like, <laughs> right. Like, haven't we all been in this situation? And the way that she says, you know, like where a second feels like 10 minutes or something like that. It is so true. It's just like, oh my God, this is so awkward, but it's not an awkward moment. And so it's like, eh, eh, okay, good. There it is. Go, 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 go kind of thing. You know, it's just like, <laughs> Like we can all, we all know how that is. <laughs> oh my God. I also love that at the end, she realizes she's like, his pants weren't even off. They move around a fair amount for such a short amount of time that they were fucking for. Do you think that they were wearing socks? Why do you ask that question? <laughs> because it's, it's so funny. Like when it's like, oh, like you finish up, it's like, oh, hey, I'm still wearing socks. You're naked, but your socks are on. Never mind. <laughs> is this what I have to look forward to in married life? Like <laughs> No. <laughs> but I do just love this like mental image of Zayden scooching with his legs bound by his pants still because they're wearing leather. Leather does not give. Oh, yeah. So he's like, like, you know, like scooching around with his pants around his ankles. That so just like, oh my God, it kills me. I do say that there's like all this awkwardness and I love this inclusion. And then literally back to back, she comes twice for him and I'm not complaining about it. <laughs> like literally it says my first orgasm rolls into a second one. And I'm like, damn girl. Get it, get it, get it, get it. Now, I think this might be my favorite moment of this entire scene. And it is Zayden saying, let go for me, Violet. The loss of control aspect in this scene is so wonderful. And maybe it's because I am such a type A person. And I'm going to assume based on your notes in here that you are also in this <laughs> camp. Like, that when I read this scene and it's like, let go for me. It's like, oh my God, that's the hottest thing I've ever heard in my entire life. And it's like, wow, <laughs> that says a lot. Like about her too. Like she's pretty in control most of the time and again she is a type a person too and then when she just gets to let go that's when the lightning happens that's how it was when you know she got to be in the saddle for the first time and she really got to like let go of all that <laughs> yeah she and did and, 
and now she's in the other saddle. <laughs> oh, my God. But I mean, like, and then to echo that, Zayden later absolutely losing control and being like, I've never had that happen. I just love the whole, we were so thrown together in this moment. It was so passionate that we completely lost control of each other. Like, that is just, that to me might be one of the hottest things. I, again, I think that says a lot about my type A na- nature that like, <laughs> oh, my God, letting go. Wow, what a relief. I also love how they're just saying over and over again, you're beautiful, so fucking beautiful. And it's in their mind to mind speak, which in my opinion, just heightens the vulnerability of it. I love that she's saying to him like so fucking beautiful and I love that inclusion because you know you don't really normally hear in literature in I'll even say in my personal life I don't really look at Brett and be like you're beautiful honey like I don't say that I'd be like you're so handsome and I just I don't know I love that inclusion it just it feels so intimate and lovely last but not least before I get on a little pedestal for a second Zayden saying it was frighteningly perfect that is just so encompassing of this moment it is fast it is passionate they didn't even get their clothes fully off that's how badly they needed each other and that's how much they needed to let go together like I just I love that this tension has been building up for so long and then finally it all gets released in this beautiful moment speaking of release I want to give a short love letter to smut literature friends For people who have very busy minds, and I'm going to speak for myself here, but as someone who is constantly thinking about what's next, what's next, what's next, and who has a really hard time having sex or having intimacy as something that is on the top of my mind, when I found these types of books, it became very much no longer bottom of my list and very much top of my list. And I'm not going to lie, I found it jarring because it is suddenly like, oh my God, I am thinking about this so much more. I'm excited to have this on my mind so much. And I, I, I've mentioned my therapist many, many times on this podcast, many more than I expected I would. But I am going to mention a moment here because I did bring this up with her. And she said how when Fifty Shades of Grey came out, apparently a lot of women in therapy were like, what the fuck? I'm horny all the time. Like I'm a 15 year old kid and I don't know what to do with all of it. And she was saying, now, obviously this is not Fifty Shades of Grey. This actually has a storyline. But I will say these kinds of books, I do think get a bad rap. A lot of people are like, oh, well, it's just word porn men. And it really, it it does kind of infuriate me a little bit because I do love them so much. But I do want to take a moment and just celebrate this aspect of books because it is so nice for, and again, I'm going to speak for myself, but it is so nice to have an outlet to get this back up to the top of my mind to remind myself that sex is something to be celebrated. It is not something that can be brushed off on a to-do list. Instead, it is something that it's really allowing us, and I'm going to speak from mainly women, but obviously it's not exclusive to women by any means, that we are allowed to be capital F feral and have that outlet in the same way that it is very much celebrated in male culture. I just, I really enjoy that aspect that smut literature has brought into my life. I have talked to a few other people and they have a very similar story as mine. And I wanted to give a short love letter to smut literature. Thank you for reminding me that sex is something that is always worth the time. That was beautiful, Nicole. Thank you. <laughs> Piggybacking on that. And I'm, you, you said all of that so eloquently. And for me, 
being a new mom, being postpartum, if you know, you know, like sex is not on our minds. There is a million other things going on. We feel touched out, all of that stuff. And when I started reading this kind of literature, something kind of awakened there that hadn't been there for a while. What you were saying with daily life, how things are so busy. And it gave me kind of like permission to let that come back into my life. Yeah, seriously, at your six week appointment, like after the baby's, you know, born and all of that, like these doctors, these midwives, they need to say, hey, you should read one of these books, right? Like, <laughs> Just slide Akatar over the desk. I like it. You should read this. When the mom is ready, right? But that's part yeah. of like, it helps you be ready. And obviously, this is not an exhaustive conversation that we have just brought to the table. Like, there are so many other aspects that are involved in why, again, women in particularly do not have sex on our minds as much as men. But we just wanted to bring up our own, at least, experiences with this. Again, this is not exhaustive, but we do hope that a few of you do feel seen. Now they're done. They're having their, you know, like post snuggle session. <laughs> but Zayden gets up and like looks at the bed because ironically, that's the only thing that they didn't literally destroy. I can't tell you how fucking hot that is. Like that is so hot that the bed is the only thing that they did not destroy. But Violet notices his scars and she starts like running her hands on his back and over the scars. But I want to be clear because she says it's not a whip. I originally thought it was like a scars from whipping. Did someone just take like a dagger and like 107 times just like one, two, Three, like, is this some kind of weird signet of torture? We kind of talked about that last week in Jack with electricity. Is this something with slicing? I definitely think that it is the same kind of metal that you kill Venom with because the weapons that Venom use give silver scars. We learned at the very end of the book. So I'm making a jump here. The daggers that kill Venom can also produce these scars. And we know somebody who has one of these daggers, Lilith Sorengale. <gasps> like Lilith is the one... I oh, you literally have this in the notes. Never mind. <laughs> like Lilith Sorengale's dagger. I'm about to go dark here, everybody. Aww. Yeah. I really do think that it was Violet's mom who is directly responsible for these scars. I know you're <laughs> right. And yet it kills me. Like, you know, Mira alludes to the retribution that he swore against their mom. There's a lot of singling her mom out and a lot of hints that there is more to the story between the two of them. We've talked about that extensively. Mira mentions his own history, too. I really do think that he played a bigger role in the rebellion or in the aftermath than we already know about. Yeah, my bet is that we've gotten the surface level story here and we're going to go way deeper and it's going to get really dark here and it's going to be all about Lilith Sorengale. I'm afraid and I know you're right. Like, I know you're right. Something in my gut just absolutely says so. While they're talking about the scars, this line really stood out to me and that is, if any of them betray Navarre, then my life is forfeit. Now, could there be a rogue marked one? Like, you know, we talked earlier on this podcast about Zayn might want to stay spy for a while longer to get it so that more marked ones, you know, graduate Bezgaeth, they have more people on our side, so on and so forth. Could a rogue mark one act out and then Zayn, is that what prompts him to suddenly be like, okay, nope, I got to go. I got to go to the rebellion side and like be more out and about on it. Now, to be fair, he is literally the person who's betraying Navarre. So his life could instantly be forfeit at any given moment if someone realizes what he's well someone does realize what he's doing because Dane and, and essentially his life is forfeit because they send him right on into a suicide mission so I guess this is actually totally arbitrary because how is Zayden going to be on the front lines in any means next year he has this Dane and his dad now know that he's been betraying Navarre this entire time yeah that big question Everything that we said earlier just immediately died and like <laughs> went like five feet under. Let's talk about the don't fall for me. I first and foremost want to hear your thoughts on this line, the whole the whole don't fall for me section. 
I really do think that it goes right back to what I've been saying before, where he doesn't feel that he's worthy. He doesn't feel that she's the right person for him because he doesn't deserve how wonderful she is and all of that. You know, he has lots of secrets and a lot of his secrets are about people in her life. So I think that that's another thing too, where it's like, don't fall for me. Like I am, I am your enemy or like you don't know me very well. So don't fall for me because he is aiding the enemy. He is hiding a lot of stuff from her. And so that's really where I see that don't fall for me come from. Retweet everything you just said. Yes. I think that it's very much the, I can't be fully honest with you. Therefore, you cannot fall for me if I'm not being fully honest with you, if you can't see me fully, which just, oh God. I do have some quick dating advice for Zayden though. If you do not want a girl to fall for you, don't get flowers for her in the morning. Like that is an instant check make her fall for me. (laughs) Go out and get wild violets to bring back so she doesn't wake up thinking that you're not thinking about her. Dude, I mean, I love it. Don't get me wrong. I love that he did this, but just dating advice for Zayden. We've received a lot of comments and DMs about this particular line, and it's finally to start counting the death of me's. The count has begun. So in chapter 26, I want to highlight this first. This is when they're flying to Montserrat. And it's said very offhand, like, oh my God, this flight is going to be the death of me. I think that's included to make it so that like, this is a very common saying, just like it is in our modern day society. However, we also get this kind of desperation isn't natural. It's a wildfire that's likely to burn us both to the ground if we let it. We also get two, two, I don't care if it damns us. And then we get our very first, you're going to be the death of me, Violet, while he's slamming into her on the arm. (laughs) But the amount of times that we get this throughout the rest of the book is terrifying. And I don't think it's an accident. Oh, I don't think so either. If this podcast episode wasn't already as long as it is, I would totally want to go there, but we'll have to put a pin in that for now because we finally have the iconic scene where Violet trains with Professor Carr for the first time. This is one of my favorite scenes in the entire book. We do need to talk about Professor Carr because this guy is kind of an ass, but he has some really interesting vibes around him. So when he kills Jeremiah, it's described as him picking up Jeremiah's body with surprising strength. He has an orange dagger tail, which oranges are normally known to be the most unpredictable. He also makes a big old point about Zayden and Violet being an unstoppable pair and if they decide to go rogue a formidable enemy do you think that he it was like a warning or could he even be it it certainly was a warning but it didn't feel like as much of a threat as it should have been so that's my question I feel like this guy's playing double agent or something because we don't know his signet I have no idea if he's good bad morally gray I'm leaning towards morally gray but I really do think we need to keep an eye out for him because I think, to your credit, I think he's on the rebellion side, but he's on the inside of Beskayeth. I wonder if he's a little bit more like an Ollivander sort of character where he is more drawn to the power versus how somebody uses that power, where it's more of like that fascination with signets in general and the power that is signets. And he's absolutely fascinated by Violet and Zayden and the dynamic duo that they most that they absolutely will be. And he's kind of like he sees a lot, a lot on the table there with all of that. I would agree with you 100 percent. But here's the one thing that makes me think otherwise. And I just thought about this. When he picks up Jeremiah, it's surprising strength. That to me ties in with like a warrior's body or like someone who trains. And 
that doesn't feel like an accident. That to me is like, hey, neon sign or hey, wink, wink, hint, hint. This guy is way more than you think he is than just being a teacher. I took that as just a little hint of his lesser magic there. Kind of like how like people are super fast, which I know is a whole other topic, but. Interesting. I just feel like it wouldn't have been included if it was just like lesser magic. This is something I want to keep an eye out for, especially going into Iron Flame. Yes, definitely. And then of course, (laughs) if we didn't already love and adore Taryn, like you do now after this scene. So Professor Carr is helping her tap into her lightning power and he says like ground your power and try to feel whatever you were feeling last time you wielded. And Taryn comes in with the best line of the entire book. Maybe all of literature? Maybe? Should I get the wing leader? When I read this for the first time, I was just like dying laughing like out loud. And I was like texting Nicole like, oh my God, that was the funniest thing I ever read. And and then apparently the internet also thinks it's the funniest thing they've ever read. (laughs) I thought I was all original. I don't know why. Favorite line. Favorite line. (laughs) I love how just like seconds later when she's talking to Zayden, he's like projecting images of herself into her mind. And it's like, whoop, immediately (laughs) skyrockets and just lightning is coming out of her yin yang. I fucking love it. Oh, my God. Oh, my gosh. It is time for our favorite section of the podcast normally, which is God fucking damn it, Dane. We get very, very little Dane in this stretch, which is awesome. Mainly, we actually don't get a single, a single face cupping instance. We do, however, get two other touches, which is hugs her after she wields lightning for the first time. And, of course, hugs her after Professor Markham's office. Now, I am going to count these two instances. However, I do also want to note that she is most likely wearing clothes that do cover her arms, her flight leathers. You know, it's it's all pretty canon that it is very much covering as much skin as possible. So we don't know if this is a skin to skin touch moment. I'm going to count it anyway. That now means our total count is up to 30. We've talked so much about foreshadowing already, but let's pull out a few other little nuggets here. I'll start. Soon after they arrive in Montserrat, Violet doubts that many people this far east would recognize the tear symbols on her dagger. I am on such high alert. Every time these ruins are mentioned, we've talked about this a lot. I am absolutely convinced that these ruins, these tourist ruins are going to play a big role in the story moving forward. You and the runes are like me and spices in the Sarah J. Mass universe. <laughs> Stay tuned to 2024. Except the ruins actually mean something. They do mean something, I'm convinced. And I will go on a rant about it January 2024. Very first episode of Akatar, let me tell you. Another foreshadowing moment. Violet says, I'm pretty good at grounding and can hold a pretty strong shield. But dot, dot, dot. the shield can potentially block out Dane Antos from Iron Flame. I will die on this hill that she will be able to block Dane out rather than Imogen wiping her memory. Something I do also want to point out real quick is that Rebecca Yaros, and I need to I need to watch the full interview, so take this with a grain of salt, but Rebecca Yaros was interviewing Jennifer L. Armentrout about her new upcoming book, and she kind of dropped a hint that Iron Flame is only going to cover half of the Bazgaya school year. So that to me, and again, I need to watch the full interview, but that to me is a big mega hint that we're going to wake up at Arisha, have some time training there, and then go to Bazgaya. Can you link that interview in the show notes, please? Yes. Possible foreshadowing when Violet asks Mira if she's thought about telling their mom about the dragon scale vest and having them made for all writers. She said that she told leadership and that they're looking into it. Are they? 
Vasquez doesn't really care about its citizens or its writers. Like, I, there could be something there where it's like, oh yeah, we're looking into it, but we don't actually really care. Like, or I don't, I don't know. It was that's weird. how I took it. It was, yeah. it was the we're looking into it, but like, okay, you know, whatever. Yeah. So like Lilith in leadership, she has a dagger. She knows that Venon exists. She knows that this dragon scale armor would vastly help them against Venon, and yet she's looking into it. I mean, she's not the one she told, but leadership is looking into it the chapter 28 opening quote no one stays friends forever mira eventually those closest to us become our enemies in some way even if it's through well-intentioned love or apathy or if we live long enough to become their villains this is foreshadowing dane 100 percent and it could also be foreshadowing other friendships. Maybe Zayden. I don't think so. I think that this is a neon sign to Dane. I absolutely agree. And also like just to yourself too, like talking about becoming your own villain. Venon, that also play, plays yeah. a little role, but yeah. When asking about his silver scars, this is during 20 questions, Sigil leaps into the sky and Taryn is like, stop pushing him and he says quote he cares for you that's already hard enough for him and then Violet retorts with he cares about keeping me alive there's a difference Taryn says not for him there isn't this is foreshadowing the end of the book where Zayden literally admits I cannot live without her which oh my gosh I do think it's a little dramatic because they're 23 but still I don't care (laughs) diving into it it's delicious then we also have Taryn talking about the leather and how it would be an issue if they take a fire attack Violet says quote I don't bother pointing out that the only fire we'd be taking is from other dragons which is a problem that doesn't exist since griffins are all beak and claw it does happen seconds later because in the war games dragon hits Terran's belly but also hello wyvern huge wyvern foreshadowing the last foreshadowing i have and then we'll get into lexi's is liam falling oh god i'm not ready she saves him this time but unfortunately she won't because at the end day's death is out of her control and she can't and darn us time stop oh, and and in this stretch you know Taryn he assures her that day's scales are thicker than she thinks and it's Liam we have to worry about but it's the wyvern they can take down a dragon and it is indeed day we have to worry about because when day dies Liam dies and then you know how Violet refuses to lose Liam just her absolute refusal to believe it failing isn't an option it's just not she never actually does fail him there was nothing anybody could do about it you know day is killed and and in that stretch you know she's even just so upset because there's nothing wrong with Liam and yet he's dying anyway there's nothing that anybody can do nobody failed him it was just it just happened. And then moving on from that sadness, Zayden doesn't feel the need to celebrate with Fourth Wing because they won a battle, not the war. And I think that this is really representative of his perspective on things in a nutshell. And I think we'll also see a lot more of this in books to come with more battles, more war. He's like, nope, we have not won the big thing. We've just won a battle. There's no reason to celebrate yet. And then to finish up our foreshadowing section here, most of us would burn this place to the ground if we had the option. <laughs> oh, how true a statement that is. Oh, buddy, is it? All right, friends. I have been looking forward to today's yes. archive section for so long. So I just want to jump right on in. We're talking about signets today, everybody. First and foremost, what are signets? Signets are the unique magical power that a human gets from their bonded dragon. So all dragon bonded writers, they can wield lesser magic like locking and unlocking doors or using a pen or making something move or, you know, shielding your mind, turning mage lights on and off you get the idea 
but their signet is the most powerful and distinctive magical ability unique to each individual. Some signets are rare and slash or extra powerful, while others are more common. We'll get into all of the signets here in a moment. Their power and uniqueness correlates to the power of the dragon and the strength of their bond. Typically, it goes the stronger the dragon, the stronger the bond, and therefore the stronger the signet. But let's be clear here. Signets say more about the writer than it does their dragon. Don't confuse a signet as magical abilities given directly from the dragon. Dragons have their own magical powers, and when they channel their power into the human, it soon manifests into a unique ability that represents the person at their core. Signets are the result of this unique magical chemistry between dragon and writer, and that is what makes a signet so unique to each individual. How the heck do you get a signet? When dragons and riders bond on threshing day, riders receive their unique dragon relic. However, that's not when they begin channeling magic, even though that magical connection is channeled through that relic. It's, you know, like that's kind of like where the source of their power from their dragon is. Now, when your dragon does decide it's time for you to begin channeling and begins channeling into you, it is quite the experience. When you start channeling magic, you can feel the power coursing through you. Remember what Violet experienced on the floor of her room before Taryn didn't put a sock on the door, right? Like just... (laughs) The descriptions are just absolutely incredible. I love it. Once when you do start channeling magic, you have not started manifesting your unique signet. This happens within a few months, or at least hopefully it does, because your power may end up burning you from the inside out because it's built up and has nowhere to go. There's power just coursing through your body once when your dragon starts channeling magic, and you literally need to have an outlet there. And your signet power using your signet is that ultimate outlet. There's no specific timestamp on when this happens, but it's about six months. It it becomes dangerously close for Violet, who it's been approximately four months for her. Once when you do start channeling magic, but not necessarily your signet yet, you can start going to wielding classes at Beskayeth, which Professor Carr teaches. You know, like Rhiannon says at one point, like, oh, I want to be like the cool kids who are starting to go to their magic class with Professor Carr. You can't start going to that until your dragon starts channeling. All right, so let's say, yay, you manifest your signet. Next step is making sure that it's not one that kills you. Whether it's directly killing you, like you burst into flame, or you're executed because you have a forbidden signet, which is just sucks because nobody has control over what their signet's going to be. Mind reading, what Jeremiah went through, that is considered a forbidden signet. And of course, Professor Carr literally just snaps his neck. It takes a lot of energy to use your signet. Violet gets super hungry because you're using her signet all the time, right? As she's training. You need to learn how to hone in the signet power. You have to control control it so it does not control you. You know, Violet, for instance, she needs to be at full strength to wield her very powerful signet. Taryn channels so much power that it takes a lot and she is probably more prone to burnout. And while we're on the topic here, burnout is when you essentially channel too much power. You're using your signet past the maximum capacity. This is what happened to Naolin when, we can assume, brought Brennan back to life. So now that we know what signets are, how you get them, what the dangers are of all of them, let's go into all of the signets that we currently know exist. And let's talk about who wields them too. First, we'll start with the exceptionally rare and the most precious signet of all, Mendine. Quote, they have the power to fix, to restore, to return anything to its original 
emotional state from ripped cloth to pulverized bridges, including broken human bones. So of course, we know that Brennan, Violet's brother, is a mender. They work a lot with healers, like what we see with Nolan. But we can also guess that it's also used to rebuild whole cities, like what Brennan is probably helping out with in Arisha. Moving forward with Signets, seeing a battle's outcome before it happens. That's General Melgren's. It's very, very useful, except if more than three marked ones are together. Power of Storms, that is General Sorengale's. The Power of Siphoning, which is absorbing power from various sources and redistributing it. That's Naolin's, which we talked about how he burned out because he didn't know the max that his power could do. An Illusionist, this is one of my favorites, which is bringing your imagination to life. That is what Professor Kaori has. Reading a person's recent memories. Yep, we know that one, which is Dane Atos's. Now it's notable that he is essentially allowed to live with this intrinsic like signet because he can be controlled because he has to put his hands on somebody's face in order to actually read their memories. Manipulating air, which is wind control. That's our friend Emery's. Breathing underwater. How cool. Heaton's yeah. mind reading intrinsic. This is straight up a death sentence. It is a major security risk. So you need to kill them before they even see it coming. Poor Jeremiah, RIP. Another few that we've learned about are taking away speech. We saw this with the silent scribe in the squad battle. Farsight, which is seeing things miles away. That's our boy Liam's creating wards specifically around her and her squad. That's our girl Mira's. Wiping memories is Emogen's. Unweaving wards is Nadine's. Astral projecting, which is projecting yourself somewhere else. Another one of my absolute favorites. It's Quinn's. Summoning, which is making objects disappear and reappear to you, which is another rare signet. Rihanna may be the first in a century with it, and this power will help her rise in her career. Water, ice, and fire wielding. Those are the most common signets that we know of. Riddick and Liam is an ice wielder. We do have to be careful with those signets, though, because we know that two other writers died when their signets manifested into fire and ice. One burst into flame and then the other one froze to death and the other people around them. Manipulating metal, that's our boy Sawyer's. And then of course we have lightning wielding for Violet, shadow wielding for Zayden here. Oof. Oh, man. And we should note, it was not an accident that Liam was on this list twice. We're going to talk about that when the time comes. <laughs> but what time is it for right now, Nicole? Let's close out this episode with taking flights with our favorite moments, if we haven't already mentioned enough. When they're at Montserrat and Dane and Zayden are at each other's throats with Violet in the middle, and one of the writers says, do you boys just want to whip it out and measure? <laughs> like, it would be so much faster. The whole family dynamic between the dragons and Violet and Zayden. You know how Taryn tells Sigal, who tells Zayden about Violet not sleeping, <laughs> and when Violet says to Taryn that Indarna is her favorite, and he just like snorts in response. Like, it's just such a fun family dynamic that they all have. I just feel so full house vibes from these guys right now. It's amazing. When Taryn's showing off his saddle, he goes, I hear it's all the fashion. <laughs> God, I love him. I said this earlier, but Taryn enveloping Vi in his wing after she killed Jack, giving her the privacy to vomit without everyone staring at her. Also, Indarna saying that she needs a bath because she's been rolling around in the mud to make her golden sheen go away. This also just feels like very royal for Indarna if she needs a bath after you know having mud again i'm looking at everything through the andarna's royal theory even if it's a stretch i don't care and last but not least i would be remiss if i didn't put this in here every second of chapter 30 every single pulse quickening moment that that chapter gives us all of it favorite moments i don't want to admit how many times i've listened to that chapter in preparation for this episode <laughs> meanwhile i just kind of breezed over being like ah nicole will take this part <laughs> 
Well, as always, thank you so, so, so much for listening. We appreciate your support and your love for this podcast more than words could ever tell you. If you're not already following us on Instagram and TikTok, what are you doing? Go follow us at Fantasy Fangirls Pod. The main party is on TikTok, but the behind the scenes fun is on Instagram stories. Also, do not forget to rate and review the podcast. Lexi, we are almost at 900 reviews. Holy shit. That's insane. We mentioned it at the top of the episode, but we got our first one star review. Five star friends come in clutch. Bury the one star. But in all honesty, the ratings, the reviews, they help us so much. We have really cool things in store for this podcast, some of which we are actually not allowed to talk about yet, which I'm like, (laughs) I'm like chomping at the bit. Real quick, uh, we can tell you it is not an interview with Rebecca Yaros. Um, We can tell you that. We can also tell you that we tried really, really hard and were roadblocked. It was not a no. It was just not a right now. (laughs) So it's fine. With the ratings, the reviews, it really helps get us up the charts. It helps us with the metrics that make getting interviews with other people that were, you know, really excited about much easier. And we really, really, really cannot tell you those of you who have taken a moment to rate and review the show. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you from the bottom of our hearts. And most importantly, share with your fellow fourth wing friends. You know, that person who just finished the book that you've been pestering to finish this book for months, send them this podcast. They will have the book hangover of a century like we did. And we decided to start a fucking podcast about it. But please, please, please continue sharing the show. It is so helpful. We found out this morning at the time of recording this, it's Wednesday, October 4th. We found out that we just hit 51,000 downloads. Y'all, that is unfucking heard of in the podcast industry who did not have any community to start. Like, this is unfreaking heard of. And that is truly a testament to you all and your passion for sharing the show. So, thank you from the bottom of our hearts. If you're wondering what to do, go take that survey. Tell us all the things that you love and your opinions about Fourth Wing that are in it. And we're so excited to be sharing those results as we start getting them in. So thank you so much and have a fantastic rest of your week, everybody. We love you. Bye.